The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Raindrops keep falling on my head. Come on, everybody. Ba-da. Boop, da 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 woo. The Ben Jarofsky <laughs> Show starts now. It is Tuesday, November 19th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, our Chicago Reader colleague, Maya Dukmasova, will join us. And it's the return of president of the Chicago Principals Association, Mr. Troy LaRavier. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Two Sets of Books Tuesday. Mm Mm-hmm. And here's why. Great weekend. You have a good weekend, D? Yes. All right. <laughs> I'm glad you had a good weekend. I saw three movies. Yeah. Three. Count them. One, two, three. Okay. Wow. So, all right. I saw The Irishman. A great l- flick. Longtime listeners of this show are just shocked <laughs> that you watched three movies uh, over the weekend. Well, actually, technically one was not a movie. We'll get to that. I saw The Irishman. Uh, great flick. Run, don't walk. We're going to have a group discussion on The Irishman. So everybody's going to, uh, as a bonus drop, I think that's two. Tomorrow, not quite sure, but um, and then we'll on that uh, episode we'll have a feature on uh, a feature segment on that. Will Dennis fall asleep? <laughs> Holy crap! No, it's a long movie. It's gonna be a uh, it's gonna be a hard movie for some people to watch. I loved it. It was an excellent movie. Uh, then I saw Joker, Dennis's favorite movie of the year. Really good movie. Uh, I will now do my imitation of Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, that's my uh, imitation of that movie. Very dark movie, D man. Wow. Uh, and then I saw a little more Woody Woodpecker than joker by the way. <laughs> yeah you're right uh and then i watched about three hours worth of dave chappelle comedy so it's technically not a movie but i watched it as if it were a movie because can we just say something dr d was so nice uh he gave me he went to the uh, store and bought me a dvd the full the collection of Dave Chappelle comedies from 2000. Now, the, the, okay, Dave Chappelle had a TV show back in 2003 when I wasn't paying attention, so I missed the whole thing. And I remember at the time people were talking about Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle. You know, typical me. I was busy raising kids. I wasn't paying attention. Anyway, finally, only you know, 15 years too late, I caught. Oh, I'm looking now. I'm looking for people to talk about. And they're like, uh, Ben. Uh, you're a, a lizard. That is old conversation, okay? And now, not like the people who thought he was cutting edge and cool don't like him, uh, D, because, you know, times have changed. He's doing the same comedy today as he was doing in 2003, but people's attitudes have changed. I, I don't know. Anyway, I really liked and enjoyed So thank you very much. I spent about three hours watching Dave's. Hey, Ben. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, Anytime. Anyway, and then I woke up. Okay, there we go. Woke up today and uh, brought out the newspaper and discovered that Danny Lipinski was playing one of the oldest tricks in the book. 
Yes, indeed. He had two sets of books. All right, let me explain. That would be Dino Dan Lipinski, congressman from the 3rd Congressional District on the southwest side. He's the son of William Lipinski, who was the uh, congressman before him. William Lipinski handed the district off to Dan Lipinski in that great tradition of democratic politics in and around the city of Chicago where you give it to your kid. All right, when you're tired of it, hey, you do this. Oh, thanks, Dad. Uh, He's been the congressman ever since. He's probably the most conservative Democrat in Congress. uh, two years ago, he barely defeated Marie Newman in a very uh, a contested battle for the Democratic primary, the Democratic nomination, and then went on to defeat Art Jones in the election. Remember that one, D? Art Jones. Uh, Danny Lipinski mopped the floor with Jones, but what's scary part about it is that Jones got 56,000 votes. Why is that scary, you ask? Good question. Thank you for asking it, D. Art Jones is a neo-Nazi. Holy 56, crap, I remember that guy. Yeah, 56,000 votes for the the neo-Nazi. Now, there's two theories about this, D. One is that the voters in the 3rd Congressional District are just ignorant and just voted for the guy with the R next to his name without knowing who he is. And two, the scary one, there are a bunch of neo-Nazis in the 3rd Congressional District. Now, I'm going to be optimistic, and I'm going to side on the, 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 the glasses half-full side of things, D. I'm going to say it was ignorance. They didn't know they were voting for a neo-Nazi. It's, it's a sign of the times, folks, when I'm claiming ignorance is the better alternative uh, to ideology. But uh, so that kind of gives you a sense of what they're up against in the third congressional district. A whole lot of people, not a whole lot of people are paying attention or they're easily distracted. In fact, you could just say uh, that's just the way it is in politics in general. Uh, Not a whole lot of people are paying attention and those who are are easily uh, distracted. Anyway, uh, so we got round two of uh, Newman versus Lipinski. And it turns out, as I said, Lipinski has a strategy document that advocates two sets of messages one for liberals or real democrats and a second for conservatives all right somehow or other that document got in the hands of marie newman backers and it was only a matter of time before it found its way to lynn sweet the intrepid washington here we go reporter uh, based in Washington, D.C., political reporter uh, for the Chicago Sun-Times. She writes a regular column, Lynn Sweet, D.C. decoder. And uh, so she analyzes the Lipinski strategy book. She got her hands on it. Look, by the way, somehow or other, uh, our good friend was also involved in this, D, uh, Rich Rodriguez. You remember him? Yeah. Yeah, uh, he was on the show. And somehow or other, he got... You know, I don't... We got to bring him back in the show and ask him, but did, was he the one who passed it off to uh, Lynn Sweet. We don't know, mystery, but uh, his name is mentioned in the story as well. Anyway, two sets of books uh, for Danny Lipinski, two strategies for Lipinski. One, his appeal to quote-unquote real Democrats, and two, his appeal to dinos, Democrat in name only. And, you know, he's the leading candidate for that one. Uh, And I'll give you uh, some of the highlights. He's Dino King. He's Dino King. He is king of the Dino Burger. Uh, Here are some of the highlights from the strategy document suggesting messages to various voter demographics in the 3rd Congressional District, as written by Lynn Sweet. uh, Lynn Sweet from the Chicago Sun-Times. Here we go. Quote, Hispanics were to be flagged about Lipinski's pro-Dreamer votes, while Republicans would be targeted with pro-Border Patrol messaging. Got that, D? So, in other words, if you're Hispanic in the district, you were going to be told that uh, Danny Lipinski had supported efforts to allow Dreamers to become citizens 
citizens or at least have a pathway to citizens. And if you uh, are hardcore anti-immigrant pro-Trump voter in the district, you're going to be reminded that Dan Lipinski stood with Trump uh, as he beefed up border patrols and kicked people out and maybe uh, of the country and supported separating families at the border. I don't know if that's part of the uh, messaging too, but it's interesting. So it's got one set of message that he's going to send to Hispanic voters, which is I am for dreamers and a second set of message that he's going to send to Trump voters, which is throw the bums out. Uh, so, you know, folks in the third um, congressional district uh, should be warned, as I always say, don't believe anything a candidate sends to you in the mail about himself or his opponent. That's my general rule of thumb. Here we go. Uh, here's another uh, a highlight from the strategy document. Lipinski is anti-abortion, and that would be the emphasis Republicans and Catholics, but not for outreach to other women, millennials, teachers, independent union members, and nurses. Wow, they've got it sophisticated. They've got it. They figured out who is Catholic, who votes Republican. They're going to get the hardcore Dan Lipinski's against abortion uh, messaging, and then everybody else is just... They're going to ignore this. They're just going to ignore the issue. That is really if that if that works, that really would show that voters are staggeringly ignorant about what's going on in politics. Because one thing that Daniel Lipinski is known for is that he's pretty much the only Democratic Congress or one of the few who uh, is against reproductive rights for women, is strongly against abortion rights. Uh, that's That was the key issue in the 2018 election against Marie Newman, and the uh, uh, anti-abortion forces came out strong for Lipinski. So he's banking on a staggering amount of ignorance of people like pro-choice voters in the area who just aren't aware of this and go, well, I, I was not aware of this. So he's just going to send them flyers in the mail that don't discuss it, you know, hoping that they're just not paying attention and they're ignorant. And like I said, you can always uh, bank on voters a certain amount of ignorance uh, from the voters. And here we go. A drive to this is the third part of the strategy. A drive to persuade persuade Republicans to vote in the Democratic primary would include reaching out to GOP office holders, getting letters from GOP surrogates and through Facebook ads targeting independents one more time. Like a secret message, it's like speaking in a secret language that only Republicans can hear. I'm against abortion. I'm against reproductive rights. It's like a, it's like a dog whistle. You know what I mean? Only the dogs can hear it. So it's like, let's say you're uh, pro-choice and you're just wandering through the district. I can't hear it. I'm ignorant. I'll vote for Lipinski because I like his name. I'm not hearing that message. Again, banking on the utter ignorance of the uh, voters in the third congressional. How about this one? These are talking points. This is the fourth one, right? No, this is... <laughs> No, those are the three uh, oh. different Number messages. Three. So this is talking. Oh, my. <laughs> I like the little drum thing. That was the start of the show. Uh, the Lipinski uh, campaign document also includes talking points to describe Lipinski and Newman. So let, this is for people going to the doors, I guess. Hello, voter. Did you know that Marie Newman is, quote, self-absorbed? Oh, that's going to scare people. What politician isn't self-absorbed? You're running for office, too. An opportunist. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that applies. They're all opportunists. They're all looking for an opportunity to get elected. And three, and here's the one. Did you know she's a socialist? I'm scared. I also want to tell you that uh, 
Bernie Sanders did very well in the, that district. So Lipinski, not giving you advice, not that you would take my advice, but you gotta, you may want to try two sets of books for the socialist label. Socialist label, it's not going to really hurt you uh, people with, of the Bernie Sanders uh, persuasion, and there are a lot of those in the third congressional. Uh, so maybe once again, you just have to re- say that to Republicans. That'd be part of the dog whistle to Republicans. Socialist. <laughs> socialist and here's the lipinski what they say about lipinski votes is conscience labor unions doesn't check the wind oh yeah doesn't check the wind how ironic is that doesn't check the wind he only's got two sets of messages blowing in the wind one this is the message blowing in the wind for liberals two this is the message blowing in the wind for republicans anyway like i said it seems as though if you read uh, the uh, memo, the, the campaign, the internal campaign document that Dan Lipinski is banking on, a tremendous amount of ignorance on the part of third congressional district voters. And if the past is any predictor of the future, it's probably a winning strategy. We got a great show today, everybody. Yes, yes, yes. Maya Dugmasova will be in the studio. We talk about everything local and national uh, and and politics. Maya, my uh, partner in crime from the Chicago Reader. And then, of course, Troy LaRavier, as Dr. D said, who'll be in here breaking down all the news, local, national. uh, We'll do some Bernie talk with Troy. Troy was a Bernie delegate back in the day. So a lot of political talk ahead of us. But before we do that, the young man from Alton, the man they call the doctor with the news. Hello, I'm Dennis. All right, Ben, back at it. Let's find out what's happening in Chicago and or Illinois this afternoon. <laughs> Why do you laugh every time? When you go, hello, I'm Dennis. Uh, I'm not really a doctor. Today on our Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker schedule, oh. a fireside chat at the Standard Club with a meeting of the Economic Club. Ben, have you ever taken part in a fireside chat? No. Are they actually going to have a fire burning? I don't know. It sounds like it. Fire burning bright. We're caroling through the night. That's a Christmas song. Anyway. We all know that. Uh, um, no, I've never, never, ever. I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun. Hey, here's another question. What is a fireside chat? <laughs> well, I presume he'll be chatting by the fire. Oh, really? That's yeah. all you got for that. Yeah. Huh? Well, you know, in the old days, this is even before my time, D, uh, President Roosevelt would give a radio address uh, from the White House and uh, he would be doing it in front of the fire. So they say it was a fireside chat to sort of give, give people the notion that they were like in the White House with their president. So I, I, maybe there'll okay. be a fire going. I don't know. Fire. So it's like in... 2019 2020 it's like live streaming yeah with without the fire without the fire yeah okay well the notion that it's a real intimate chat that he's uh among friends that uh he's letting his hair down that kind of thing that's and he's gonna you know tell you what you need to know what you want to know answer your questions Honest, that kind of thing. No ducking and dodging, all right? So at a fireside chat. He's doing the fireside chat, and then he's off to the Lewis Innovation Hub and Incubator in Romeoville, where he'll speak at the Community Wins Award ceremony. Wow, Romeoville for 10 trivia points. Who do you know, and I know, a frequent guest in this show who uh, lives in the Romeoville area? I hate when you do these trivia points thing. Um, I don't know. Sergio Mims. 
no. <laughs> Sergio Mims lives in Hyde Park. He'll oh. be coming on the show, I believe, tomorrow, Sergio Mims. Atiba Buchanan is oh, from that neck of the woods. I knew that. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. I knew that. All right, so he's doing that. Uh, the Innovation Hub and Incubator in Romeoville. He's going to speak at the Community Wins Award Ceremony. Mm-hmm. In statewide news, we talked about this on Friday. Go download the show to get more detail. ChicagoReader.com and ChicagoSunTimes.com forward slash pages forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A-V is in victory, S-K-Y. Very, very good. Come January 2020, Democratic Illinois Senate President John Ooh, Cullerton will become just citizen John Cullerton. Mm-hmm. He's retiring. Ben, what were your thoughts on that again? Well, I took a lot of heat from my uh, friends of the cynical persuasion. Because if you recall, was it Friday that we discussed this? Yep. The story broke that uh, John Cullerton was stepping down. He announced out of nowhere that he was not going to run for re-election. There's a vacancy. And, uh, and so this being Chicago, immediately people began to wonder, does he know something we don't know? I mean, every other Democrat in the state is under investigation. And I said, no, I think he's stepping down uh, for the reasons stated that he wants to spend more time with his family. Everybody made fun of me, D. Do you realize that? I did. <laughs> Walking down the hall the Sun-Times, oh, real hard-hitting reporting from you, Ben. You know, you, you, they're tough on me at the bright one, you know. Oh. I was wondering what all that snickering in the bathroom uh, was You about. actually fell for that, Ben? <laughs> So, anyway, uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm sticking by it, whatever, you know. And, and, and of course, Dennis goes, oh, I'm going to keep that bit around so that uh, if something does come out, I'm going to play it over and over again. But, uh, yeah, man wants to spend more time with his family. All right, D? Come so, on. So huh? Cullerton's retired, and because it's Illinois, we're all a little suspicious. <laughs> But it only took a good yeah. night's sleep for a list of potential candidates for the mm. next Senate president to appear in the news. Sadly, no, once again, Ben Jarofsky was not one of them. <laughs> Been trying for over two years, people. He won't run for anything. By the way, any more thought on that uh, water reclamation gig? You love water. I do love water. And by the way, may I say the water at the Sun-Times is delicious. Mmm. I'm drinking the Kamala Kool-Aid again. I'm like, you know, I'm like, if we're going to get a centrist, why not get Kamala to run? I'm talking about the local news. Oh, sorry, man. Uh, And uh, anyway, so uh, yes, no, even though I really love water, I'm not ready to run for water reclamation district, man. One of these days. One of these days, guys. He'd make a great water reclamation guy. One of these nights. Sorry. So on Friday, we had a list of six rumored Senate president replacements, and today... We have one, and it's not a rumor. She's actively campaigning for the job as we speak. It's Illinois State Senator Kimberly, no, not Lightfoot, Lightford. (laughs) Kimberly Lightford. From the western suburbs. Mm -hmm. If elected, she'd be the first woman and first African-American to preside over either chamber in the General Assembly. Uh, That is not true. Well, that's what it said in the paper. That's not true. Tell us who. Uh, well, uh, in terms of African-American, maybe first African-American woman, but uh, a president of the Senate, Emil Jones, uh, in the early O's. Uh, he's a black man from the south side of Chicago. And they're going way back in time. This is way back in time. So nobody who wrote that story would remember it because only an old timer would remember. Cecil, correct. <laughs> Cecil Partee, state senator from uh, the 20th Ward. He was the committeeman of the 20th Ward. He was the state Senate president. One of say in mid 1970s Cecil party so there were been two uh black men who have been president of the senate wow 
So there you go. The things I know, huh? Now, Ben, I can't recall. What do we know about Kimberly Lightford? Anything? Well, Kimberly Lightford is a state senator from the uh, western suburbs, I believe, but don't quote me. She's a graduate, Never do. A graduate of Proviso East High School, uh, a.k.a. the Panthers. And uh, she's your basic, conventional, straight-up Democratic Party uh, loyalist. And uh, we sort of be following along the lines of Cullerton, if she got the gig. Now, I will say this, um, the perspective that she would have as a black woman would be a definite alternative to a white man. So uh, I would say in, in many ways, that would be a step up. But it's not, she's not by any means like a Bernie Sanders uh, radical, if you will. You know, uh, She's more of a straight up party person. So I could see her getting the gig without a, lot of, a whole lot of controversy. Well, it seems as though, yeah, like you said here, Lightford, Lightford is well liked. I want to say Lightfoot every time. Lightford is well liked. A lot mo- of lights. <laughs> little this little light of mine. This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. <laughs> Yeah. Seems like she's well-liked among her peers, this Lightford. She's got some early endorsers, two of which were people rumored to be running for Senate president as well. 7th District Senator Heather Staines and the senator out of the 48th District, the downstater, the 618-er. <laughs> Andy Menard. That, that weeping you hear is Dennis because he was really pushing for Andy Menard. He's my guy. Uh, but uh, what do you say? Andy Menard has jumped aboard the Light Ford bandwagon? Along with Senator Tony Munoz of the 1st District, these three have lined up behind Lightford. And according to Illinois Politico, these three aren't just endorsing her for the Senate president. They would also serve as part of her leadership team. And between the four of them, the senators represent key constituencies across the state with every caucus represented. African-Americans, Latinos, women, and I guess because what they really want to say, country-ass white people (laughs) would be considered uncouth downstate. (laughs) What did you call country? Oh, man, Dr. D, that's funny. The foursome also has combined expertise in key areas, education, human services, public safety, budget, and redistricting. So while this does give Lightford an early edge, this good, is... Good, that's tough, man. I, and, you know, he doesn't even have dyslexia. Could just imagine poor me dealing with this? <laughs> Try not to say Lightfoot. Now it's in my mind. Uh, Lightfoot, Lightfoot. No, Lightford, Lightford. Yeah, I'm worried that working with you long enough will give me dyslexia. <laughs> dyslexia, man. You do not want to be battling it my whole life. So while this does give Lightford an early edge, this is still a long, and as Illinois Politico eloquently put it, behind the scenes oh, race so hold on here comes the phone can't talk now i'm on the show but let's cut a deal later that's going on folks they're burning up that line all right i'll support you if you put me put, in, put me in charge of this committee you got it i'll support you if you can find a job for my brother you got all oh, the wheeling and dealing d it's politics man that's and how it's it illinois down. it's illinois it's just it's just Politics in general. Remember the movie Lincoln? Did you ever see the movie Lincoln? No. Uh, uh, Steven Spielberg's movie about Abraham Lincoln. Anyway, there was all. It was talking about um, how Lincoln was wheeling and dealing and promising jobs to get the votes he needed uh, to pass legislation. You know, that's how it's done. It's been been done that way forever. 
Of course, now Lincoln was an Illinois politician, D. So there's that. Good point. Uh, thanks for raising it. And uh, he's also a downstater. Okay. Thank you. Again, you're on a roll, man. <laughs> Do what I can. Uh, but so much wheeling and dealing. And it's not just Democrats, folks. Lincoln was a Republican. Republicans wheel and deal, too. Don't kid yourself. So, yes, it's a long race still. And Senators Don Harmon, Michael Hastings, LG Sims, Napoleon Harris, and Melinda Bush are actively working to gather support. Oh, my God. There's like three different new names. Yeah. The, uh, Napoleon Harris was not named nope. uh, before South Suburban uh, State Senator for 10 trivia points. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> what sport did he play in college? I had baseball. Oh, no. Nice try. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, uh, that would uh, be wrong. You're mix, mixing him up with Chris Welch, oh, state rep from uh, the West Western suburbs. Uh, Napoleon Harris was a great linebacker for Northwestern University. Did you know that? Obviously not. Did not uh, know that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he was not on the list on Friday, so I guess the list is expanded. Yeah, tomorrow we'll have three more. It's sort of like the Democratic nomination for president. You know, we like two or three people drop off, and then two or three people uh, sign on, and it just seems like it's stuck at 20. And uh, so it's going to be the same thing. Sooner or later, they're going to have to cut a deal. Um and decide who's going to replace Johnny Cullerton. All right, so enough about this story. But before we move on, hey, Cullerton, <laughs> Ben may not, but I got my eye on you, pal. <laughs> Cullerton, man, he's going back. He wants to spend more time with his family and his property tax appeal business. It's also something he said. He's a property tax appeal, or he works for a law firm, one of the biggest uh, property tax appeal firms in the city, since he wants to spend more time with his law practice. So. All right, moving on. Moving on. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. No, not Lightford. Lightfoot. Lori Lightfoot. (laughs) What's on the mayor's schedule? Well, it's a trip to St. Bernard's Hospital Ambulatory Care Center to announce the launch of Family Connects Chicago, which is a new service designed to support the health and well-being of mothers, newborns, and their families by Mm -hmm. providing home visits with registered nurses at no cost. That's what's on her schedule. Mm -hmm. Last week during her meeting with the city council, Mayor Lightfoot announced her minimum wage plan. She wants to raise Chicago's minimum wage to $15 an hour by the year 2021, but also maintain a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. Well, according to the Chicago Sun-Times and Fran the Woe Man Spielman, it cleared a key legislative hurdle on Monday. It advanced to the city council floor, setting the stage for a final vote on next week, and it advanced to cheers from restaurant owners. Yeah, they're... (laughs) Yeah, they're happy. The cheerful Illinois Restaurant Association president, Sam Toya, said the, quote, pragmatic mayoral compromise advanced by the city council's budget committee, quote, balances the needs of hardworking Chicagoans struggling to make ends meet with, quote, neighborhood businesses that drive our economy. Mm. But there are those who aren't so cheerful about all of this. Like, let us entertain you, Vice President Ethan Sampson, who says eliminating the lower wage would, quote, jeopardize the tips that tipped workers rely on. Ryan Marks, owner and operator of the Legacy Hospitality Group, who stated that the tipped minimum wage would be devastating to their bottom line and potentially put others under. And 35th Ward Alderman slash Ben Jarofsky show frequent guest Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who argued again Monday that eliminating the sub-minimum wage and phasing in a $15 an hour wage for all workers was imperative to, quote, reduce workplace sexual harassment and eradicate a two-tiered system that, quote, leaves black and Latino women in the service industry behind. But Ben Jarofsky, what say you? Where do you stand on Mayor Lightfoot's minimum wage? Well, as always, I'm all over the map uh, on this one. Uh, First 
first of all, I have a hard time uh, really feeling sorry for some of the restaurant operators who are, are you know, weeping over this uh, because some of the these are big chains. They're making a lot of money. They're doing well for themselves. So, uh, you know, I'm got I have a feeling to quote the Beatles uh, that they could uh, cut a little more money uh, for their tipped employees. Uh, on the other hand, I do think that it might be difficult for some smaller restaurants, not the big chains, uh, to continue to operate. So I could see a point uh, that if you raise the amount of money that a restaurateur has to pay uh, his or her staff uh, for um, the, the tipped employees, it could be prohibitive. So I, I, I do have sympathy for smaller the, the smaller restaurateurs, not these big chains, though. I mean, I'm a hard time believing anything they say. Uh, and uh, right now, I think the deal would be that the minimum wage would rise uh, by next year to $8.40 an hour for tipped employees as opposed to $15 an hour for non-tipped employees. I, you know, I leave tips for everybody these days, D. You know what I'm saying? You go to the uh, to like a, a, a Panera or something like that, the little jar out there, pop belly, get the little jar out there so you put the money in. So um, I'm, I'm kind of I I do believe you got to protect the smaller businesses. I'm actually I'm sympathetic to them, but come on, it's crocodile tears by some of these big companies. I'm not falling for. And by the way, Sam Toya, who's singing the praise of it, has been around this uh, Chicago politics for a long, long time. Don't ask me where he went to high school. <laughs> I was going to ask you for ten trivia <laughs> points. What restaurant chain did he used to run? Burger King. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Leona's eh, you're wrong uh, Kyle weighed in on the YouTube live stream chat and dude I agree with you 100% Kyle says Ben knowing the high schools where local politician, uh, politicians went is one of the weirdest aspects of political <laughs> analytics that he has well I don't know my inability, there's a lot of weird stuff going on in my head but you know it's <laughs> Kyle I'll explain it this way I like to know where people come from you know what I mean so, so the first question is well what high school do you go to and then here's the weird part it gets lodged in my head. That's the cry for help, Kyle. That's the real cry for help. Like, think of all the things I would know if I, my head was decluttered from the things that I've accumulated, the oddball pieces of trivia and information. Uh, but, you know, just as a general question, where'd you come from? Like, Dennis, where'd you come from? I think one of the first questions I ask you, where'd you come from? Mm -hmm. Downstate Alton. I'm fascinated by that because I'm interested, you know, in people's backgrounds. And Dennis has told me a lot of stories about Alton, the people who went to Alton, what, how Alton is different than Chicago, the different tastes of people. So if you really, I'm actually going to disagree with you, uh, Kyle. I think if, like, if you really want to do a study on, on trying to kind of understand where people come from, it's good to know their backgrounds. And, you know, the, the, one of the things is what school they went to. But the weird part, and I humbly agree with you, is that the way it gets lodged in my head. And so that I know that, for instance, Chris Welch went to Proviso West High School, whereas Kimberly Lightford went to Proviso East High School. And that Proviso East High School is in Maywood, and that Proviso West High School is in Westchester. Kyle, that is weird. I agree. That was a very convincing answer you gave there to Kyle. All right, we're going to end it out here with an Ubergate update. You guys remember Ubergate, right? It all started when Mayor oh Lightfoot. Oh, God, Ubergate. <laughs> it all started when Mayor Lori Lightfoot promised to impose a congestion tax on ride hailing companies like Uber. Yeah, to no one's surprise, Uber isn't really happy about that. The mayor and Uber have been going back and forth ever since. 
Boy, first the teachers, now Uber. Hey, no one ever said being the mayor was fun, all right? <laughs> I'm kind of with Lori in this fight, though. Lightfoot last week even <laughs> accused Uber of offering to pay black ministers in Chicago $54 million to help the company defeat her plan. And she didn't really have any proof for that, but she said it. Uber has since said, uh, that's not true, and the mayor has since walked that Wait, statement Wait, I would back. take really out of that sentence. She didn't have any proof for that. <laughs> anyway. So uh, she since walked that back, but we do have another update. The following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times, and yes, once once again, France Bielman, Mayor Lori Lightfoot on Tuesday, shot down Uber's latest alternative to her $40 million congestion fee, calling it, quote, a Hail Mary and a distraction by the ride-hailing giant that will do nothing to ease the downtown traffic nightmare. Uber claims its latest alternative would generate $10 million more than the mayor's version. If the plan falls short, the money-losing behemoth, whose investors include former Mayor Rahm Emanuel's brother, <laughs> is offering to make up the difference. Lightfoot was not impressed. She's sticking to her plan, confident that she has the votes for it. We have a quick quote from Mayor Lightfoot. Quote, this is another kind of Hail Mary pass on the part of Uber. It doesn't involve either of the two rideshare companies, and it's telling that it comes after months of engagement with them. It comes the day before the vote. Yeah, I'm like I said, I'm I'm with uh, Lori Lightfoot on this one, and uh, we'll get into it with Maya a little bit. Maya's entered the studio, gets her thought, get her thoughts on this as well. Uh, one of the points that Lori Lightfoot made when she was running for office, and I know this because she made it uh, uh, very vehemently when she was at First Tuesday, uh, back in whenever she was at First Tuesday, our show at the Hideout, was that she viewed uh, she she wanted to use a tax. Uh, to try to, uh, as an incentive to keep people from taking Uber, and not just Uber, but Lyft, any ride sharing. And in fact, her point was that there's too many cars on the roads uh, in downtown Chicago and in the air surrounding area. There's too much traffic congestion. It's not good for the environment and it's not good for public transportation. And she talked about this. I was impressed uh, when she was saying this on the camp. I was impressed with a lot of things uh, that she said at that hideout show. Uh, she, I guess she knew who she was talking to or the audience she was talking to, but she's standing by her guns on this. So she's talking about the tax as a disincentive to keep people from uh, taking a single ride just for one person to be in an Uber cab. And Uber is reframing it. They, they know, I don't think they want to have a disincentive for people to use their services. They're not in the business to worry about the environment. They want people to use their uh, services. And so they're talking about spreading out the tax, bringing in the taxi cabs as well to make as a revenue thing, to raise money for the city. Uh, and they're trying to win over, and I think they're successfully doing that. Uh, the editorial boards are jumping aboard with Uber on this one. So it's like they have two different points here. Uh, uh, Lori Lightfoot is concerned about the impact of all these cars on the environment. And uh, Uber is concerned about making sure they can continue to have as many cars as they can out there so they can make more money. So there you are. That's the latest of what's going on in Chicago and or Illinois. We will keep you posted on those stories as today's program rolls along. We're going to take a quick little break, but don't worry, because when we come back, our Chicago Reader colleague, Maya Dukmasov, is here. We're talking all things politics. It's the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu masters. 
The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. All the infrastructure would... The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in... Hey, welcome back to The Ben Jarofsky Show. Live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Maya in the studio. Maya in the Hi. studio. And uh, she's got a lot of Uber thoughts. Uh, she has... A lot of tax thoughts. A lot taxes of... on my mind. Ta- corporations and taxes. Oh, I, yeah. didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow, I'm writing that down. <laughs> uh, taxes on her mind. Did you have to... Did you get a bill? No, uh, but you know, there was this big New York Times story this oh, weekend yeah. about the... About mm-hmm. the- yeah. Ooh, shocker. The Trump the Trump tax cuts did not generate uh did not stimulate corporations to, you know, spend more money to yeah. hire more people and all that stuff. Yeah, we'll get into benefits. that. But, uh, we'll get into but that. first. Yeah, but first. But first. Uh you want to promote a little something? Yeah, well I want to promote two things. First of all, tonight tonight at Talia Hall, it's the best of Chicago uh party which will feature some of the winners of the Best of Chicago categories uh, and lots of food and drinks and other wonderful things, comedy, musical acts. It'll it'll be a fun time. There's still tickets available. Um, The party starts at uh, 7, actually. So, and I believe the tickets are $15. Let me double check. Um, But you guys can go to chicagoreader.com and see all of the details on that. Yep, uh, $15 tickets. There's $45 VIP tickets too. And then uh, the VIP party starts in six. There's like special perks for that. Don't know what those are though. It's a top secret. Um, so yeah, so that's tonight. And I hope uh, lots of people show up. Uh, I don't know what kind of plans folks have on a Tuesday night, but it seems like there wouldn't be a lot of stuff competing. This Is there still time. raining out there? It's like misting and gross, but that's all the more reason to come to the party. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Bob Mueller is going to be there, (laughs) y'all. Best special counsel. Uh, He'll be reading from his report. (laughs) Uh, What page was that? (laughs) (laughs) Not hearing very well. Uh, (laughs) The other thing we should promote is December 3rd. It's our second first Tuesday show, and we just got our guests lined up. Hey, it'll be Exciting. yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be a show <laughs> devoted to to housing, uh, housing issues, uh, and we'll be talking with um, Chicago Housing Department's Policy Director Daniel K. Hertz, which probably most of your readers know because until very recently he was an author and researcher. He's the author of the Battle of Lincoln Park, which is a great book about the history of gentrification in Lincoln Park and the way that the city um, urban renewal programs really pushed out uh, working class uh, Puerto Rican uh, residents of Lincoln Park and uh, made way for, um, uh, you know, the yuppie, the yuppie white crowd, basically. Uh, It's a short book, but it's amazing. And it's so interesting. It really 
you know, sheds an interesting light on the city uh, and on the conversation around gentrification in, in a part of town we don't really think of, uh, ha, that, in a part of town that's already kind of achieved peak gentrification. So, um, so Daniel has for years been uh, a thorn in the city's side, uh, a, a budget analyst, uh, a uh, policy analyst for um, uh, a long time. And he, you know, would constantly be poking holes in the city's arguments about how they don't have money for this or that, or how they did, how, you know, various policies and planning decisions they've made. So now he's working for the city in this new department of housing. So it'll be interesting to talk with him and have him in conversation with our second guest, who is um, Leah Levenger, who's a longtime organizer and housing advocate and the director of the Chicago Housing Initiative, which is a, a coalition of um, uh, tons of community organizations from around the city that uh, fight for uh, more affordable and fair housing uh, and integration in the city of Chicago. And uh, if, you know, any successful fight for affordable and fair housing in the city in the last probably decade, if you've heard about it, Leah's probably been involved in it or leading it from behind the scenes. So she and Danielle have known each other for years as well and have collaborated on various projects. So it'll be interesting you know, she's still in her role as a thorn in the city side. Uh, and he's now, you know, working for the man or the woman, <laughs> if you will. So yeah. uh, it should be an interesting conversation. You know, the city is embarking on this, um, you know, Lori Lightfoot promised more affordable housing and a better approach to stimulating affordable housing creation in the city, which, you know, the Department of Housing is now sort of tackling uh accomplishing those goals. Um, so we'll hear about that. Uh, in the meantime, there's like 120,000 unit shortage of affordable housing in the city. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a huge gap. Well, to let, fill. Me, let me ask you this, um, at the risk of sounding uh, too jaded, uh, cynical and skeptical, mm. uh, the governing principle, uh, the statement I should say that has really influenced me a lot in this discussion came emerged uh, two years ago in the uh, a year and a half ago by Chris Kennedy in his race for governor, long forgotten otherwise race for governor, and uh, Chris Kennedy of course is uh, an heir to the Kennedy family, one of the Kennedy. Uh, he's the son of Bobby Kennedy, so he's very well connected. Uh, his family is well to do. He lives in Lake Forest, so he has not spent his life on the front lines of the fight for affordable housing. But at one point, at a moment of truthfulness, uh, he blurted out that Mayor Rahm's planning policies were largely intended to drive poor people, poor black people, he came out and made it a, a racial uh, point, uh, out of the city. And uh, I've been covering the way the city spends its economic development dollars for years and years and years. And it was hard for me to see any, to to, 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 to criticize his comment, to, den uh, to deny his comment, to doubt his comment. It just seemed like he was speaking the truth. Like he woke up one day uh, like Jim Carrey in that movie and could not help but speak the truth. And uh, of course, then he was uh, wrapped on the knuckles by editorial Chicago, said, how dare you say this? This isn't true, et cetera, and so forth. And yeah, yet I wonder if it had been different if he had said the effect was that rather than the intention. Because it, like, it doesn't even, you know... It's they a, got into intention versus, <laughs> right. you know... So, I mean, well, yes, it's... So it's, the issue yeah. is, it's like, if, if your policies have the effect of driving people out of the city, mm. and you've not questioned these policies openly, and you've not analyzed that effect, then really, I mean, the intent is... 
It's like, why even discuss intent? If you know, it, it's pretty obvious that uh, effect follows intent or the other way around. So anyway, uh, the point is, how sincere do you think uh, this administration is uh, to confronting the issues that Chris Kennedy was raising, which is that the city's becoming uh, largely unaffordable to middle class, working class, and poor people. Yeah, I mean, I think the administration could be very sincere about this. The point is, like, what are the tools available to actually accomplishing that? I mean, I think it, you know, you could look at the fact that they hire a guy like Daniel to be the policy director of this housing department as uh, a demonstration of their sincerity, or you could look at it as, you know, and we'll ask him about it for sure, is like, you know, is this just like, uh, is this just, uh, is he being used as kind of a mouthpiece for something that isn't, you know, that the city has no real intention or ability to accomplish? But actually, I mean, nobody is more informed and articulate on the on what you, on these matters and like what you're talking about than Leah Levenger. And for years, I've just, I mean, she knows everything through and through about um, what, tools are available for the city if they want to use them to actually create more affordable housing and help working families stay in the city. Um, she knows everything about how these tools have and haven't been used over the years. Um, and the last time I spoke with her, uh, you know, she sort of, she said an interesting thing that I hope we'll get more into during this conversation with both of them, which is that the inclusionary zoning uh, law that the city has, the affordable, what's called the ARO, the Affordable Requirements Ordinance. So it's this law that, you know, you hear a lot about, which is that if the developer, if like a developer wants to build a new, um, uh, a, a new building, build new apartments, uh, then, uh, oftentimes they're required to set aside a certain number of those units to be affordable housing. Or if they don't want to do that, they need to pay this in lieu fee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the city supposedly is going to turn around and use that money to help subsidize people's rents and help stimulate affordable housing construction elsewhere in the city. Mm-hmm. So, um, this tool, uh, is actually this, this cities have like a tremendous amount of discretion and leeway in using zoning to force developers to develop in a certain way that cities would like them to, unless it's like something discriminatory, like cities can, cities can no longer, uh, zone areas to, you know, prohibit, um, you know, to, 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 to say that like, okay, black people can't live here. Yeah. You know, obviously the, there's various things that happen that make that the case. But, uh, but when you're talking about the opposite of that, if you want to use zoning laws to make sure we have equal access uh, to, you know, for, for families to be of, of all racial backgrounds, for black and brown families to be able to live across the city, the city does have, and the Supreme Court has time and again, reaffirmed the city's right to establish zoning laws to make it so that, okay, we would like our city to be more integrated. We wanna require developers to, you know, construct a certain number of, of units for families, for families making a certain amount of money. Chicago is within its right to do that. And Leah has been arguing for years that the city of Chicago has not been flexing its muscle to the degree that it's able to, and that it could in using, in using these like inclusionary zoning powers. And the argument the city always makes, of course, is like, well, if we make it too hard, they just won't build anything. (laughs) Developers just won't build anything. And the truth is that like, even with the current version of our inclusionary zoning law, the, the ARO, it's gone through a few different iterations, but since it was first really put into effect, like in uh, 10 years ago, there's only been like 
444 units yeah. constructed and there's 120,000 units short shortage. So of course there's lots of people in town who also say, you know, like we can't just wait for like people to build this new housing. Like public like the the government is not building public housing anymore. Private enter, you know, private developers are building slowly. Uh, it's all kind of this market-based system where we can't really count on them to deliver this housing and it's too easy for them to get out of the requirement to, to, to deliver this housing. So the other big conversation obviously going on now is about rent control. It's like, you know, we have an, a stock of apartments already and, sh you know, do we need to be making sure that the rents are lower because, um, you know, there's various different kinds of arguments for it. There's lots of arguments against it. And so again, these two folks, uh, who'll be coming in to talk with us are very well versed in this conversation. And I think it'll be interesting to talk about, okay, do, are we going to solve this problem with a bigger supply of affordable housing created either by the government or private entities? Um, and pretty much the option is private entities because the government's not in the business yeah. of building building uh, public housing or affordable housing anymore. Um, or, you know, are we going to sort of uh, go toe to toe with the landlord, mm -hmm. with the kind of landlord class in our city? Yeah. So it should be an interesting discussion. Uh, December 3rd, 630 at the hideout. 1354 West Wabansia. And one more thing, folks. There is now a Facebook page for First Tuesdays with Maya and Ben, and you all should like and follow. Ben took care of that, right? That was all Smash <laughs> that like button. <laughs> Robert He's, Mueller is following it. That's correct. <laughs> you didn't hear the little wise guy comment from Mr. Altman. I heard it. There. I heard it. No, what, what's, the, uh, what's it again? Where can people find it at? Uh, it's the, on Facebook, First Tuesdays with Maya and Ben. Boom. It's a Page, follow it. We're going to have the event page up and, you know, well, $5. And don't be Five. shocked if you send Ben a message and he doesn't respond. <laughs> don't be shocked. I'm so busy on the weekends watching movies and old Dave Chappelle shows that I don't have time to respond to Facebook. Uh, saw wow, three. must be nice. Yeah, no, I saw two movies uh, and watched three hours of Dave Chappelle. All right. Uh, one of the things that's related to this, is, and you talked about is taxes, uh, and I will now do a little correlation nice here. Nice pivot. Yes, thank you. Uh, and that is this. When uh, Donald Trump, oh my God, I was harping on this. When Donald Trump got Congress and uh, to pass his tax break bill, one of the things that it did would force local, the, the municipalities and the states to raise their taxes because the federal government is pulling out more and more uh, from the business of helping municipalities with their bills. This is the greatest defense of the TIF program that I'll get for even good government people like uh, Dick Simpson, you know, Professor Dick Simpson and others will say, well, Ben, you know, I know I realize that this is a total scam, but what choice does the city have as the federal government uh, retreats from its role in uh, helping cities deal with their problems? Uh, it's a compelling argument to a certain degree. And uh, so, but if you go to a form, if you're asking cities, if, if the federal government is pulling back on his contributions to cities uh, and is claiming it has no money, being thanks to the tax cut, mm -hmm. then you're forcing cities to raise taxes on the people who live there. The most direct form of taxes is usually generally the property tax. If you raise the property tax, and this is a great divide between people who own their property and people who rent it, because people who rent it don't realize this. If you raise the property tax, you're raising the cost of housing in a city because the landlord will pass on that raise, in more case, more often than not, 
uh, in the form of higher rents. So it's causing rents to rise. This is a great struggle I had in the early days of TIF reporting to try to get activists, uh, low-income housing activists, to join my crusade against TIFs because it's just, I could, it's just raising rents and making the city less affordable. So this is actually, you should put it down on some kind of cheat sheet for yourself for December 3rd because I really want to get our guests' uh, responses to this. But I, I actually, what I would like to see, and this is an argument, like the argument you're making is like completely well-known. It's a completely logical thing the landlords talk about it all the time but i actually want i have never seen any kind of data that would show me okay when in such and such year uh the city of chicago or cook county or whatever uh raise prop you know raise property taxes here's the corresponding amount by which landlords raise their rent because seeing that math on paper actually having landlords open up their books they would have to reveal how much profit they're making off of their holdings and how much profit they expect to be making. So they're not going to, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to allow higher taxes to cut into their profits. Like that's what would be the point of, you know, the, the, the goal of having a business is like, you're continuing to grow your profits over time, you know? So, but I want to know by how much, by how much, how much, how much are they, uh, willing how much do they pass on to their tenants because maybe also there's a calculation about how like okay well our property taxes are 10 percent higher now but we can't raise rent 10 percent because you know we're not going to be able to rent out our units so we're going to raise rent eight percent and eat the other two you know i don't know how these kinds of calculations get made but i've never actually seen the arguments you're making i've never seen the math. i would yeah. like to see the math and i, I have wanted to for years i and and no landlord has ever taken me up on the offer to show me their books. Yeah. Uh, well, you're not the IRS, so they probably won't. Uh, but then there's like there's so many different ways in which landlords pass on uh, these the tax hikes. For instance, a landlord, you know this. We've you've written about this as well as I have. Uh, our whole system of property taxes allows people to appeal their property taxes, get a lower assessment. The lower assessment a, a landlord gets. Uh, the the less he or she pays in taxes, the more someone else is going to have to pay in taxes to compensate for it. That's the, that's the situation. One thing is related to another. So the the specific information you're seeking probably would, is unobtainable unless you take a deep dive into the documents that a landlord files in order to get a property tax break. So for instance, if you're really curious about the arguments, let's say that the Trump Tower uh, lawyers, Ed Burke, your favorite alderman, raised uh, in getting a tax break for the Trump, I just said that in my, I got a little smile out of my, uh, that he raised, it's generally, well, we can't rent out our businesses on the lower levels. We're not making as much money. And then they have to provide information to back it up. So we need a break. We need a relaxation and a lowering of the assessment. So we pay less in taxes. So that kind of monumental mass study across the board, it would be very difficult. Yeah, because on the other, because the other thing is that with the stuff with the Trump Tower is like, that commercial space on the bottom of the Trump Tower has been vacant forever because it's a horribly planned and designed, horribly expensive space that n- n- retail is struggling enough as it is, even on Michigan Avenue. Like that space at the bottom of the Trump Tower was, I, you know, uh, just it's it was it's been a losing battle. Yeah. Um, and so I would argue that for housing things are different. Well, no, just in terms of the Trump thing, I would argue that uh, it's they're absorbing the the. 
it's you i would have to take the deep i would like to see a deep study of that to see if effectively follow me what i'm saying that bad decision uh to put the retail where they did compounded by the bad decision to put trump's name on the tower which would be a further deterrence from people to want to operate business there because he's not the most popular man in the city of chicago uh if those bad decisions are effectively being subsidized by the taxpayers of chicago of course they are this i mean ProPublica did this a whole investigation on this This is why we have a new tax assessor is because that's exactly what's happening the question though is what are these businesses going to do once there's an attempt to write the system what I'm saying is if if you if a company this is the argument I've made and uh, the current new assessor doesn't really agree with me on this one I'm arguing that if a company makes a bad decision makes a bad business decision mm. like putting retail below the river or whatever that's mm-hmm. or putting the name of one of the most despised politician the most despised politician on the uh, on the uh, on its face they should not be the beneficiaries of a tax break that raises everybody else's taxes. They should be held accountable for their bad decision. They made a bad decision. Why should I have to pay more in taxes because Donald Trump insists on putting his name on the side of his building? Why should you have to pay more in taxes or Dennis pay more in taxes because Donald Trump and his developing pals decided they thought it was a good idea to put retail below the Chicago River, uh, on, on the level of the Chicago River. If they made bad business decisions, why should I have to be subsidized? Listen, those of course you should like, yes, that is a, a, an example of like common sense. Yes. Like we shouldn't be subsidizing Donald Trump's bad business decisions, but the problem is so much more widespread than that, because even if that building didn't say Trump on it, and even if they didn't design it in such a shitty way, like the point is that people who have access to knowing how to game the system through these through these through these appeal processes and it doesn't matter if you're a commercial building downtown uh or if you're a you know a rich homeowner in Winnetka like people with money can get a lawyer to help them appeal their property not just any lawyer Ed Burke or Michael Madigan yeah or John Cullerton yes these people are I mean it's it's so much it's so much bigger than just the Trump what I'm saying I I I really put it to Kagi why do you allow this? Why continue to allow this? Just say no. The the art the, the way this because the system, at what okay because at the, what point does the government? I mean, look, they could change the rules right now. The system is set up for downtown business property owners to argue that if they can't rent their space, they get a tax break. Effectively, they're giving an incentive to downtown business owners not to rent their space. No, Ben, I don't agree with that. But look, the assessor's job is not to figure out why the business isn't making money. Even if that's effectively, if they're subsidizing Donald Trump's shitty decisions, like any bit, like normal commercial storefront operators want their business to be thriving. You don't want the assessor's office to be deciding whether someone is thriving or isn't thriving and needs a, a lower assessed rate because they've made shitty design and business decisions or because there's a recession going on and nobody's shopping, you Actually, know, yeah. and like, a, and, and whatever your retail, I'm just saying that like- I disagree. I think they should make that I should I believe there should be a distinction drawn between a natural decline or a fall in the business community the climate that is hurting all businesses across the board and just either an egregious attempt do you I mean how would you even value. prove that how how do I prove that how would you how would you get 
the assessor, how would the assessor's office undertake proving that a particular business's claims that they are just, you know, they can't fill their units, well, they can't fill their the apartment case, units, so therefore the, they need a tax break the, on their apartment building. In the case of Donald Trump, it's pretty, uh, that one is easy. That's one case. But that's that's the one that I'm talking about right up front. Donald Trump's building has Trump on the uh, side of it. Mm -hmm. At one point, when they were sending out a marketing appeal, they took a photo. They sent a photo out to prospective uh, renters with the name blemished off edit it off. They didn't want the name. Like they would say, they were saying, uh, Troy LaRavier's got a business, uh, a restaurant business. He wants, he's thinking of putting in a Trump Tower. In order to induce Troy to move his business into Trump Tower, they sent out a flyer with the name uh, edited off. So, so, okay, they reco- so they're obviously, they're recognizing up front that that name is a liability. So if I'm Fritz Kagey, and I'm the assessor, and I realize that any assessment break I give to Donald Trump means that Maya pays more in taxes, and Troy pays more in taxes, and Ben pays more in taxes. But that's one property, and there's like 1.6 million parcels in Cook County. Well, it, it's if you're going to have... If the problem is that, the, 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 like, it, it, this, this needs to be... This, there's like a more fundamental problem in the system that makes it so that commercial properties, the way that they are assessed, like the formula used to assess them is different and skews, like it, it skews against homeowners and it skews against businesses in lower neighbor, lower, lower income neighborhoods. And among homeowners, the, the formula has been skewed against people in lower income or gentrifying communities. I mean, I, I That's it, true. It, these are, these are like these, the assessor's office is never gonna be going case by case with every business that's appealing their property taxes and saying like, okay, well, why are these people are claiming they're taking such and such a loss? They're claiming that their, you know, luxury apartment building downtown is half vacant. Well, why is it half vacant? Yeah. Is it because, you know, like, is it because they, they're making crappy business decisions? They're not, let me, like, well, you know how much ju- property taxes we would need for the government of Cook County to be able to expand and fund the operations of the assessor's office to do that kind of no, work? So that's w- like, <laughs> you're making a convincing argument. You're making an argument that's saying that we can't afford afford to police the claims that taxpayers make when they seek uh, a tax break, then maybe what we should do is change the whole system. That's what, that's, so that they're not turning, that Donald Trump doesn't turn to them uh, on a regular basis. That's with Ed what Burke. Fritz Kage was elected to do, but here's what's coming down the pike. And, and he I've hasn't been, done it yet. I mean, yeah, because there's already like a tax revolt brewing among people who don't, I mean, the Kagi team's like main argument about why he's going to be successful has been steadily that people want the system to be fair. P- nobody, even the people who are benefiting from the unfairness and are paying less in taxes than they should on their Winnetka house or their business downtown or whatever, that even those people want to feel like they're not part of a dirty system. Well, okay, that's all fine and good. They'll vote for Fritz Kagi. But when their tax bill goes up by 50%, when, when the system has supposedly been righted, those people are not just going to take that laying down because this exact same thing happened in the 70s when Sololinsky and his like activists discovered that like U.S. Steel was paying nothing in taxes and a bunch of other corporations were paying nothing in taxes. They rang the alarm about this. There was a, a, a new reformist assessor that came in who was going to modernize and right-size the system. And then when the new tax bills came out and people's 
rich people's property taxes went up, there was a tax revolt in Evanston. And there was a whole huge push that then, you know, was part of a whole snowball that create that like changed how schools were funded, mm-hmm. that it, it just, it was a huge mess. So I don't see yet like how uh, they're going to avoid that whole snowball situation this time around. Yeah, well, the, but, the, the, the reality is uh, there's a, a greater issue that uh, you're getting at here. People don't want to pay property taxes. It's it's such a direct form of taxation. Anybody who owns property knows, knows what that's like. When you get that property tax bill, it's a big jolt. And people don't want to afford it, want to pay it. And yet, we're becoming more and more dependent on it, uh, particularly as we talk about these larger issues that you were getting at when you said uh, Federal Express had a zero tax bill last year. So again, yeah. it gets down to the point. Some You got to find the money to pay for these obligations somehow. And this is one of the most convenient things that you have right in front of you uh, that, that a mayor has uh, that the, well, not at the Cook County board president, cause she's frozen. They've frozen about basically the rate as you've written a few more, more than once uh, that they're going to take. But, uh, until we come up with an alternative, this is what we're stuck with. Yeah. And then, you know, there's like, other than that, there's like little tweaks here and there to, you know, simulate the city budgets that like that, like this ride share tax, you know, uh, we didn't, I guess we let's didn't go, know. let's go into that. Uh, we, we uh, if Troy LaRivier is sitting on deck. We're going to bring her on re- re- him real soon, but he's going to listen to what you have to say. And then I'm going to ask him what he thinks about it. So he's listening carefully. Talk about the Uber tax. I mean, so my understanding of the proposal uh, that the Lightfoot administration is, is trying to push for is that there would be an increased tax of up to $3 for rush hour single person rideshare rides, so like UberX or a regular Lyft, uh, in downtown locations to basically combat the issue of people in the most congested part of the city taking a car for themselves only to get from point A to point B. Uh, the way that the proposal lightfoot's proposal has been structured from what i understand is that 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 the extra fees on shared rides in non-downtown locations would actually go down Mm -hmm. so it would be cheaper to take a shared ride from you know i don't know roseland to inglewood or you know south shore to mount greenwood or something like that like it it's uh this would be better in communities that are not downtown during rush hour. <laughs> so uh, the counter argument that I've heard has come from obviously the corporations, but the, you know, I feel like they've mobilized some allies in the media to say that like, this is gonna hurt, this tax is gonna hurt um, black and brown communities, that it's gonna hurt lower income communities because people rely on, um, on rideshare services because there's less uh, you know, available uh, less dense public transportation options, um, like on the south and west sides. Uh, but the data around the use of rideshare services, and this is what I wanted to bring up, our colleague John, um, John Greenfield, who writes the transportation column for The Reader, but also is uh, uh, on Streets Blog Chicago, he has an article um, with data from the um, Center for Neighborhood Technology uh, that shows that the vast majority of rides in South and West Side neighborhoods are shared rides, so they would not be hit by these taxes. Uh, and in fact, they would get cheaper with the, with Lori Lightfoot's proposed reform to these taxes. So 
uh, it's kind of uh, like, of course, like the, the thing that's most profitable for Uber and Lyft is to have as many individuals taking their cars as possible. Every time there's two people in one of their cars, that's not two separate cars. So um, I would encourage everyone to read uh, Streets blog for like very detailed analysis of these proposals and counter proposals, because it's the most sort of in-depth and data back takes that I've seen. I like the newspaper columns are just very watery to me. Like mm-hmm. the data around this, like this is the, like they've got maps that are color coded that show where the taxes would actually hit. Um, and it just, I mean, you can see the arguments fall apart mm-hmm. that this is going to impact lower income neighborhoods first because, and it makes sense, you know, like t- taking a, a, if you've ever used a rideshare service, like taking an individual ride is so much more expensive than a shared ride very often. Mm-hmm. And so like, yeah, it's like people who live near downtown who are taking an Uber to work during rush hour, who are like eight, who are taking individual rides. Almost everybody else who's got, you know, you got median income folks in the city of Chicago, like they're not, you know, you take a ride share because it's like faster and it's more convenient. Um, and I don't know, I think most people opt for a shared ride when they have to go a long distance. And if you're on the South side, you're way more likely to be going a very long distance because the South side is huge. Yeah, I, I uh, that's a very convincing argument that you laid out. And again, it gets back to what Lori Lightfoot was talking about when she was a candidate. This is one of Ben, I hope Lightfoot people are listening because it <laughs> seems like you and I are on here Defending, Defending Lori, Lori Lightfoot. Oh my God, we and praising <laughs> something that's coming out of her. Well, if her, it's, a policy we, proposal. We took a lot office. of abuse, uh, <laughs> or yeah, I was speaking for myself, for my position on uh, the teacher strike. I was very pro teachers uh, in that matter and very disappointed with Lori Lightfoot. But in this particular case, uh, I would have to say that. Lori Lightfoot's arguments make more sense. Definitely from the an, data backs, yeah, the from data an, backs well, up what the, the mayor's office is claiming. And the other thing, which is what I'm going to raise with Troy, get his thoughts on this. So I'm putting it out here so he can hear it. I'm always, I have just a knee jerk skepticism bordering on cynicism. Whenever I hear a corporation saying that its policies are intended to, to help, help the poorest yeah. black people in the city of Chicago. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that's not why Uber went into business, but uh, whatever. I've been hearing arguments like that, like these restaurants with the minimum wage. They are, the, the number everybody says, oh, we're against the minimum wage because we're going to make more money. They say, oh, we're against the minimum wage because I'm really worried about my poorest employees employees so it's generally uh the argument they make all right uh maya and, uh, uh, real quick too uh, i want to remind everybody maya's going to be uh talking pot with our good friend pat whalen friday oh this my friday God, yeah friday I another mean, another promotional thing yeah it's good evening with pat whalen uh maya's going to be with lorena cupcake Ben, you love Lorena Best Cupcake, Best of right? Chicago winner for Best Bud Tender in mm-hmm. the city of Chicago. Uh, Senator Heather Staines, Maya's going to be there, Ike Holter, and Arish Singh. It's this Friday, November 22nd. Wow. 10 at the f- Frontier. Yep, at the Frontier, 10.15 p.m. $10. Well, it says $10 American dollars. That way, let me <laughs> Not Canadian. That won't <laughs> uh, no fly. Uh, it's 11.06 West Thorndale. It's this Friday. Pat Whalen always puts on a fantastic he show. Sure it's does. a great show. You all should come. Uh, and uh, all right, Maya, I, have, I probably won't see you until... After Thanksgiving, so have a great Thanksgiving. Yes, have a great Thanksgiving. And, uh, we'll I got you here. some reading material. Yes, Daniel read Hertz's book. book. Thank you very much. I'll read that book. Uh, I'll see you. Uh, you'll be my first guest when I return from my travels 
on December 3rd. Can you believe that? And um, that'll be the day of that'll be the first day. Tuesdays. And I'll be like, no sleep. I have flown in. You know, that's my best, man. With no sleep when I take that red eye. And then I crash on Wednesday. All right, uh, Maya, thank you so much. we got Troy LaRavier on deck. We'll bring him on when we return. The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu slash masters. Hey, everybody, what you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M is in Mary, A, N is in Nancy, U, E, L, P, I, A, N, I, S, T, dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. Chicago and Cremation Options, we are committed to listening, educating, and guiding your family through the cremation process. Whether it is time of death or when planning your wishes for the future, Chicagoland Cremation Options can accommodate you at an affordable price and with great dignity. Avoid funeral home costs with direct access to a crematory for a cremation. Chicagoland Cremation Options, just south of O'Hare, five minutes west of Chicago. It's a family-owned business and operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Visit it at ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time, Chicago Land cremationoptions.com The L LSD The Tree The Bean Those are some of the words that you have to be a Chicagoan to understand Oh yeah <laughs> Brush up on your Chicago lingo with Chicagopedia a brand new guide from the Sun-Times that hilariously defines the terms that any good Chicagoan should know it's pocket-sized, making it a perfect stocking stuffer. Oh, that's awesome. Or gift this holiday season. You can order your copy right now. Head to suntimes.com forward slash CT shop to order a copy of Chicagopedia 
today. Okay, Ben, not right now. Oh, we're doing the show. You can't order stuff online while we're doing the show. He really wants that Chicago Pedia. Actually, I, it was delivered with my uh, Sun Times on Sunday. Oh, you already I, have it? I have a copy. Why are you trying to order two of them? Uh, no. All <laughs> I right. should have brought it to the studio. I oh, forgot. Come on. Your, your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, November 19th. Hour number two is just moments away, but before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions for sponsoring this program. First up, it's the International Association of Machinist and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and of course, today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by the Chicago Federation of Labor. Hour number two, let's go. It is Tuesday, November 19th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, one man and one man only, it's the return of the president of the Chicago Principals Association, our good friend Troy LaRavier. Now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. When Troy comes on the show, I divide it into two segments. I got local, got national. They're really tied together because national affects local, uh, and uh, as we were talking about with Maya. And uh, so we're going to start with the local. We're going to go through uh, all the local news of the day, get his thoughts and stuff, starting with that teacher strike, which settled. Last time Troy was on the show, uh, we were talking about what the teachers, were the teachers asking for enough? Troy had a very interesting perspective on that one I hadn't seen in the mainstream media. That's for sure. And then we'll... Uh, head over to national uh, news and talk about uh, the efforts to uh, unseat Donald Trump and have a more just uh, America. But uh, before we do that, D, you got an update for me? Absolutely. Here two updates. Uh, one shout out to Ben Jarofsky show devotee, Frank. Oh, what's what, going on, Frank? What's going on, Frank? Ah, well, you were wrong about something. Okay, well, it's not the first time. All right. He says here, uh, Ben, actually, uh, Chris Kennedy is from Kenilworth. Not Lake Forest. You know what? You're, I sit corrected. That's correct. Uh, <laughs> uh, now the question is, what's the difference? Sorry, I didn't mean to insult oh my uh, Kenilworthian. Okay. <laughs> Kenilworth right. listeners, please. <laughs> You're right. Tune out. You're right, Frank Kenilworth. I sit corrected. All right. So there you go. Uh, if anytime Ben uh, you know, says something else incorrect, please, Frank, <laughs> weigh in. We love it. All right. And we actually have a update, a real update. Uh, the following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times and Tina Spondelez, Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox today officially announced her re-election bid in a digital ad, an email to supporters. I'll try and grab the digital ad and uh, play it before we get out of here. Uh, Fox also takes square aim at the National Rifle Association, the Fraternal Order of Police, and well, you guessed it, President Trump <laughs> in the two-minute Ad. Uh, Fox also said the personal attacks she's endured over the investigation are about stopping progress in Cook County. In the ad, Fox, Fox touts her accomplishments, including more violent crimes being prosecuted. Oh, my God, we have the ad actually here attached at the Chicago Sun-Times. You want to hear the ad real quick? Sure. Uh, sure. Got Why Troy not? in the studio getting his thoughts oh, on the please ad, Please don't too. play any other additional <laughs> ads. Oh, here we go. It's about two minutes. It's different now. We're not playing the whole thing. But I grew up at Larrabee and Division better known as Cabrini Green. It's where I learned to be tough, to survive, overcame poverty and sexual assault. 
For years, the name Cabrini Green was synonymous with racism and poverty. And the towers were symbols for inequality and injustice in Chicago. Time passed and the projects came down, but those problems haven't changed. Now new names symbolize injustice. Names like John Burge and Laquan McDonald. All right. Well, there's wow. about a minute more there. A minute more of that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, any 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 thoughts about that, Troy? Before uh, I know that's called improv. I just threw that at you. I had heard uh, it. So, um, first of all, I love Kim Fox. I'll just say that I wasn't crazy about that commercial, but I love Kim Fox. Um, I think when you're an incumbent, um, you don't necessarily rely on the backstory as much. There was a very good to use it when she was introducing herself to people. Mm-hmm. The Cabrini Green story. Now you're the incumbent, and so you, you have to lean to your vision, uh, the things you've accomplished, progress you've made. And I don't know if you know we didn't hear that part. Uh, and I'm sure you know it's just an introductory commercial. I'm sure she'll have some stuff out. Um, then the John Burge and oh god, what's the the the, the Quan, the guy who the officer, uh, Van Dyke, Van Dyke, right? I, I would have said I wouldn't have. I, Laquan symbolizing injustice. I don't know if I get what she was trying to say, but I would I would have used the name Van Dyke rather mm-hmm. than the name, you know, Laquan McDonald. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, distinction in and of itself. Just think about that for a moment. Let's just think about what you're getting at when you say that. Uh, what are you getting at when you say that? The I think of the purpose. Of the, so there was a perpetrator. So he, she started with Burge. If you're gonna start with a perpetrator, then your second one has to be the per- another perpetrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there, uh, she juxtaposed John Burge <laughs> with Laquan McDonald rather than a victim. Uh, Van Dyke, yeah, a victim. That's all. Yeah. Um, those are my initial when thoughts. You, when so, you yeah, say like, again, uh, that's my first time here. Yeah, I so. first time hearing it too. I almost <laughs> want to hear the whole thing. Where she go? Yeah. Where is she taking? We're talking about Cabrini Green. Uh, I would a lot of younger voters probably don't even know about Cabrini Green. You know, Cabrini Green was, was I think it was finally torn down, I want to say mid-O's, something like that. Time flies. Like it's, it's been so many years. I know that uh, in the 90s, it was already starting to, the talk was in the air, the plan for transformation uh, to tear down the, the big high-rises. So... I mean, she's, I mean, she's trying to get some bandwidth, though. I mean, in terms of who's going to show up to the polls, both of the younger voters who you're talking about aren't the ones who, you know, historically show up. Mm-hmm. People who vote, they know what Green Green is. Yeah, what it yeah. symbolizes. I, I certainly remember as a kid, Mayor Jane Byrne <laughs> moving into Cabrini Green. Like, that's that was the thing. The mayor has moved into Cabrini Green. And so anybody in my generation knows exactly what she's talking about. Yeah. And we're the ones who vote, people older than us. Uh, yes, the older people do. Well, yeah, I, your point well taken. Anybody who does vote knows what Cabrini Green uh, is. You say you like Kim Fox. Now, it's, uh, expound on that a little bit. So I have to so excuse myself <laughs> in a way. Uh, Kim Fox and, and my first wife are good friends. They've known each other since law school. Um, did not know that. Um, I actually met Kim when going down to visit my wife. My wife was a third year, Kim was a first year. My wife was the president of the Black Law Student Association. And she did a lot to help first year law students. And Kim was one of the people, um, for lack of a better word, she mentored. Mm -hmm. So I've known Kim for quite a while. 
and just love what she's become and I'm very proud of her. So oh, and, I'll uh, leave it at that. Leave it at that. All right. Well, uh, it's, it's, uh, I just actually wrote about this as fresh in my mind. This is, uh, I wasn't even planning to discuss this, but since we're having this conversation, uh, it's becoming harder and harder for me, Troy, uh, to take serious, although I do take serious, the corruption in the city of Chicago. When I see the corruption that's engulfing us on a national level, right. it's completely tolerated by the Republican Party, uh, and there's absolutely no consequence for Donald Trump's uh, corruption. The Republican Party is making no effort uh, in any way uh, to investigate uh, the corruption that Donald Trump has perpetrated. In fact, they're going the opposite way. They're doing the, everything they can to distract people mm-hmm. from an investigation, to uh, distract us with just these tangential ir- this trivialities. Uh, and, um, and many of the same people that do this on a local level are trying to fire us up about Kim Fox, for instance, and Smol- what I call Smollettgate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about Smollettgate never with you on the show many times. Uh, and I just find it harder and harder to take serious, even even like the more um, obnoxious evidence of corruption in Chicago, like mm-hmm. s- the state uh, representative Louis Arroyo on tape uh, bragging about bribing. You know what I'm saying? We're, that, we're supposed to be outraged by that, and it is an outrage, but in comparison to what's going on on a routine and regular basis with Donald Trump, mm-hmm. uh, I just find it hard to be so outraged about what's happening locally, particularly when so many of the allies I see, like people, the, the Republican critics of local Democratic corruption are absent yeah, with the I, larger one. I have a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, thought number one, Democrats... The right and the left have two different definitions of corruption. I'm convinced. They're not talking about the same thing. The left is talking about, when the left talks about corruption, we're talking about the dictionary definition. We actually know what the word means when we say we're talking about corruptions. When we say we're talking, when we say we don't want to see corruption, we are talking about wealthy influencers putting money into the political process in order to profit from government decision-making. That's what we're talking about, what corruption is. When the right talks about corruption, there's no real definition. It's just like government, like lefty government. That's just, that's just it. Anything that we can tie to potential waste or um, just the over-representation or, or government sort of what they call government overreach. Like they don't have a real dictionary definition of corruption when they talk about it. It's just anything you do they don't like that they can pin the word on, (laughs) that's what they say. They're not talking about corruption. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, in relation to the whole Smollett thing, um, you just, one of the things you mentioned before you played that commercial is an increase in the, prosecution of violent crime, right? That's one of the things you mentioned in terms of Kim Fox's record. Now, if I remember correctly, part of the reason that she dismissed this case was for that very reason, that we have a limited amount of resources here. Now, we can spend a lot of the state's attorney resources prosecuting this man Mm -hmm. 
for this lie that he told, or we can put those resources toward prosecuting violent crime. And it was her decision to put those resources toward prosecuting. This is my understanding of the, the decision-making process, that this man, he is, he's, almost, he's already got a natural consequence. His career is over. He is never going to get another job in Hollywood. He's a has-been. We can take these resources and actually put them toward prosecuting violent crime and actually making a meaningful difference in crime in Chicago or the reduction of crime in Chicago. That is my understanding. And it seems as if the record actually matches the reasoning. If you say your reasoning was to prosecute, like I have a focus on prosecuting violent crime and the prosecution of violent crime is actually up, it seems like things match up there. Now, if she had said that and then the prosecution of violent crime had gone down, we'd have a problem yeah. here. <laughs> but it seems like that record justifies and backs up her stated decision. Now, you can still disagree with it, but at least th there's a consistency there. Yeah, well, all right, listen, I don't want to relitigate Smollett Gate at this very moment and other things to talk about, but the biggest problem, see, here's my problem now, they got me going, because I, I, I feel that the greatest victim from the, the Justice Smollett uh, story is the effort uh, to have alternatives to harsh prosecution. That uh, w the way she handled it, the way her office handled it, the way they fumbled it, uh, just gave credence to all the voices on the right that want to dismiss alternative sentencing completely. And uh, so they use this as a convenient tool uh, to, um, to go after the, an entire movement. So I think there, it, there were serious consequences uh, to what she did. Uh, that said, like I, the more I watch many of her harshest critics and their weak response, their non-response to matters of abuse of power mm -hmm. that are far greater. Like Donald Trump, when a witness is testifying in a congressional hearing, tweeting out negative comments about them, which is so obviously an attempt to intimidate not just that witness, but any witness. How many law enforcement officers or how many prosecutors can stand by and not speak out about that? I mean, how can you build a case? It's like, they'd be like, I mean, I just saw Godfather 2, it's on my mind. So we're, we're uh, you know, we're the, they brought in the, um, they brought in the hood to speak out against Michael Corleone and Michael Corleone responded by bringing the hood's brother. And I don't right. know if you ever saw this movie, yeah, I've seen it uh, times. but it's like, <laughs> it's just like standard. Right. There you go. Yeah. It's just like standard when, when thugs and criminals want to intimidate a witness you know they come in the court and they sit there and they stare at the witness you know and so it's like same law enforcement types that are blasting kim fox she took a phone call from a well-connected democrat uh in this in this case are the ones who are looking the other way when donald trump intimidates a witness so it's like that's what i'm getting at troy where is the consistency if you have a principled opposition to this kind of behavior then why don't you advocate that principle when it's a Republican that you support as opposed just to a Democrat that you don't support? It's, I think you said it in the question. They don't have a principled opposition. They just have opposition, but it is not a principled opposition. I mean, this may sound like a stretch, but it reminds me of the, the whole thing with um, the whole Confederate statue argument where um, 
they say that this is about states' rights. Right? That's the principle it's supposed to be about states' rights. But when you look at the actual history, the same people that were yelling, you know, states' rights in terms of uh, our right to own and keep human beings were against states' rights when other states wanted to exercise their rights to not return those human beings when they escaped. At that, at that point, it was about, no, you don't have a state's right anymore. You have to do, we need a national law that prevents you from exercising that independence. So when it was, the only two things that are consistent there it are uh, the desire to keep and expand slavery. So when it was about states' rights for the South, we were on the side of states' rights because it kept and expanded slavery. When it was about states' rights for the North, then we were against states' rights because that kept that, that will keep and expand and increase the... So you don't have a principled op opposition in terms of states' rights. What you really want is slavery. And so I don't think in the same way that Republicans have any kinds of principled opposition against corruption, you're using this label of corruption in much the way they use the label of states' rights to give a veneer, to create this veneer of legitimacy to your opposition, to whomever you're opposing at the particular moment, whether it be Kim Fox or Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or Michael Madigan or um, the, the young, the, uh, the Adam Schiff. Mm -hmm. Whomever it is, I'm going to cloak my opposition in this veneer of anti-corruption. But, of course, I don't give a damn about corruption. But because when it comes to the president and his corruption, I'm going to turn a blind eye here. You know, it's about, for them, it's about winning. That's it. It is about winning. And we'll say whatever the hell they need to say to win. And that's it. Yeah. I agree with you on that one. All right, let's move on to the uh, the local level. Uh, you wrote, uh, well, you were on the show, you articulated your worldview on this, and then you followed it up with an essay about, uh, in your humble opinion, uh, the Chicago Teachers Union was not demanding enough uh, when they went on strike. Uh, it, it uh, you were, as I said, you were pretty much the only person I saw make that argument. Mm -hmm. uh, I agreed with the argument. Uh, I could defend the teachers union for having the limit because it was good Lord to get the city to do what they did was kick force them kicking, dragging, screaming, complaining, writing editorials, etc. Uh, but you made a very compelling point that more needs to be done to eradicate the inequities that just existed forever since you were a little kid growing up in the city of Chicago. So now that we have the perspective, the strike is over. What are your general thoughts on this? So right now what we're dealing with post-strike are um, the thing I've been focused on, unfortunately, that's taken up way too much of my time, uh, are the makeup days. And, and the impact of the makeup days on how schools are going to be rated. That's my thing now. So because they scheduled makeup days the day before Thanksgiving, that kids once had off and going to go on vacations or do whatever, they, whatever they're going to do, and the Thursday and Friday of the last week of Christmas break. No one's going to show up to school. But those are going to be attendance days. And attendance is, depending on how you calculate it, 20%. They'll say 10, but there's another 10% um, called an on-track rate. And the biggest part of the on-track rate is attendance. So 20% of your rating is going to be based on attendance. And I've had, Ben, I, I swear to you, I had a black male principal 
on the South Side and a white female principal in an affluent school on the North Side called me on the same day and said the same thing to me. If this makeup day schedule goes through, this is my last year in CPS. This is just because what's going to happen, particularly for the black male principal on the South Side, and you can see this a lot with schools who, with principals who serve uh, black and Hispanic low-income children, is that they know that that attendance, because of those five days and the horrible attendance they're going to have, their rating is going to drop and their schools are going to suffer as a result of that ratings drop. That all of the work that they've done to build up their attendance is being torn down by this decision to have makeup days uh, on what would have otherwise been vacation days. And so what I'm doing is trying to push CPS, if they're going to go with this schedule, to take those days out of consideration when it comes to the rating. Like, just don't let them count. If you want to make them attendance days, fine. Make them attendance days. But do not let them count toward rating these schools. Um, 90, I did a survey, 98%. I have never had this much agreement in a survey in my life. 400 principals responded. 98% agreed with the statement that the district should not count makeup days toward school ratings. Um, so it seems like a no-brainer, but with CPS, you never know. So that's, I know it's probably not something you were expecting, but in the world of education. No, it's a, a direct impact, yeah. It is a, a big issue right now, and a lot of principals are following um, what the board's going to do tomorrow. And I'll certainly be at the board meeting tomorrow pushing them uh, to adopt so that the policy. So de- that decision will be made right there at that meeting? The decision to adopt the makeup That's correct, yeah. Will be made. Now, whether or not they also uh, adopt a policy of not uh, counting those yes. days toward the school rating, we'll see. But I've sent the proposal to them. Uh, they've seen it. Mm-hmm. And we'll see if they yeah. act on it. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, no, the... Um, uh, I remember when when that w- decision went down, there were two impact uh, two impacts. One uh, is what you're talking about uh, the 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 way they use attendance as a way to judge schools' performance, uh, and uh, the second one, of course, was effectively the teachers uh, were to a degree subsidizing the benefits. Uh, that they won what whatever benefits they did win for uh, the children of Chicago. I mean, uh, when you hire, it's, and it's so funny how way people view this, Troy, but this gets at the heart of my debate that I've had with so many of my fellow Chicagoans. When you hire more nurses, when you hire more librarians, when you hire more social workers, et cetera, and so forth, that's a direct benefit to the kid in the classroom. And yet somehow or other, the way it's interpreted, it's viewed by so much of mainstream Chicago mm-hmm. as like, what, a loss? Because <laughs> you have to pay for it. Do you follow me? It's like a loss for this, like Mayor Lightfoot retreated and lost to the Chicago teachers. It's a very bizarre worldview that Chicagoans have adopted on this one. I think that's a few people making a lot of noise. I do not believe that the majority of Chicagoans make, you know, the Sun-Times and the Tribune, you know, they have an outsized, vo- their editor- the, the folks who run their editorial pages have um, an outsized representation of their voice. 
Um, you put it on, they can put something on the front of the Tribune three, four days in a row, three, four weeks in a row, and it seems like that thing those few people are saying is public opinion, and it's just not. I, I can't see a reasonable average person saying more social workers, more nurses, in the most understaffed school district in Illinois is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, right after I did that piece mm-hmm. showing that Chicago Public Schools was the most understaffed school district in Illinois based on state data, the state released new data to show that they're no longer. They're like one of the top staffed school districts in Illinois. Somehow CPS went to the state and got the data changed. Like, <laughs> like now the number, now, now listen to me, man, listen to me. The number they have now, yeah, based on the number they have, because it went from 17 kids, 17 staff, excuse me, 17 ch- children per staff member to 12 children per staff member. In order for that to be true, CPS would have had to have hired 10,000 people last year, 10,000 new positions. We know that did not happen. And so something strange is afoot here um, because the new data no longer has CPS. And it's been the most, one of or the most understaffed school district ever since I've been keeping track of this thing. And um, after I start talking about this, all of a sudden, and it started getting some notoriety, all of a sudden the state releases data saying that, nope. They were number 861 out of 861 school districts. And now they're like 100 something. Wow. That is wild. Just a stroke of some changes in data. And and I remember the first when you were a mayoral candidate uh, and you raised this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the fact checker for Better Government Association Association, uh, took the deep dive. Mm -hmm. And she ended up saying, you were right. Or I forget they have a rating system. True. True. Yeah. yeah. I got a true. You got a true, which is pretty good by their rating system. It's the best. It's the best one you can get. Uh, (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It's true. And you can't get any better than that. (laughs) And to prove that it was true, she went, she herself went to the state. Yes. The the writer researcher Mm -hmm. went to the state and dug up the information. So now what you're telling me, and I have not taken an independent look, is that the state has changed the information it's presenting to, so that people who take this deep dive will have a different conclusion. Now, to be clear, they, they changed the data based on interaction with CPS came after the state to change the data. They've told, I've talked to um, uh, Matt Lyons, uh, the head of uh, HR. As a matter of fact, when I put the data out, he came to me. Yeah, head either. of HR at CPS, or yeah, head okay. of HR. They call it the talent department. Well, I'm glad they're talking HR. to you at least. That's a big improvement. <laughs> Chicago Public Schools were trying <laughs> to fire Troy Larabier for a while, uh, and now at least they're, they're at least one person is talking to you. So well, he only came to say, "Where did you get this claim?" And so I showed him the data from yeah. ISB, and then he went to IS. He and his department went to ISBE. And as a result of their, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, <laughs> but as the result of their interaction, CPS is no longer one of the most understaffed based on the data. <laughs> and I don't know how good, because you got, you, have, you know, this is the same district that changed charter school test scores. This is the same district that got caught Jimmy in and, um, and, and um, inflating high school graduation rates, right? And so this is the same di- district that got caught editing 
a document that was released via the Freedom of Information Act uh, so that it would not say what the original document said. Mm-hmm. And so you have to please excuse me. And I told him, I was like, I'm sure you will understand, given that that record, why I have my doubts about these so-called corrections you guys made with the state. Um, but yeah, are they these, made them. Are these quote-unquote corrections uh, symbolized or represented uh, or supported by actual human beings in a school like are your are your members principals calling up oh my god troy we suddenly got 10 nurses (laughs) no they're not (laughs) they are not he did make one interesting point though about um that made it seem like there might be some need for a correction i can't remember the exact data but he basically was like okay we have blank many teachers blah 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 if we have this many teachers alone uh, that seems to be more than the 17 to 1 ratio that they're claiming. And he was right. Mm-hmm. He was right on that. Whether or not it actually went up as high as it did, I'll never know, but I doubt it. Well, so uh, given all this, uh, you, do you think that uh, we're in a better position uh, than we were before the strike uh, in terms of meeting the needs of the poorest children in the poorest schools? Depends on how you put that and how you look at it. In some ways, in sort of a sort of absolute sense or immediate sense, yes, we did not have a guarantee or we didn't have it in writing that we would get these additional positions. Um, another way you look at it is that, you know, the biggest bargaining chip that we had is now gone. Mm. There can be no strike for five years. There's, that's the biggest leverage we had. And did we get as much as we could have out of the leverage that we had? Um, and, you know, I have my doubts about that. Um, you know, it's the biggest sort of obvious sense of leverage. I mean, people can rise up at any point if we organize ourselves and put pressure. Uh, but in terms of ready-made leverage, mm-hmm. you know, that... The, the ability of the union to strike was the biggest thing we had at that time, and now it's gone. Just think about how what uh, embedded in what you said, a very depressing theme. To get the powers that be in the city of Chicago to do the right thing and invest our resources in the poorest of poor schools, there there is a strike. Right. And that is pretty much it, absent... A mass revolt, right? Uh, which I haven't seen happen in this town since about 1983. Mm-hmm. So it just is kind of a depressing thing that you just said. It, it, they were forced, as I always say, kicking and screaming every step of the way, complaining. Uh, when the strike right. was over, their advocates uh, in the media ripped the teachers for daring to go on strike, and then uh, raised the issue of sick days to besmirch all teachers everywhere as a bunch of what ne'er-do-wells mm-hmm. and uh and now but the reality is you're saying is true now everybody's back to business as usual and next year start cutting tiff deals taking money away from the schools right. closing schools etc because the hammer is gone exactly for five years it's gone but i also want to say that that latter part and because I don't want to down the teachers, because I know I seem like I come down hard on the teachers' union. It, yeah, in some ways, I do because they had that power, and so you have to put as much pressure as possible on them while they have it. 
But I mean, they shouldn't have had to fight that fight alone. They should not have. They should. So I can't be so angry at them or disappointed in them. I have to be disappointed with me for not organizing um, a cadre of people to stand with them. Uh, and I think we all, I think I think the best thing for us all to do is to sort of think about how in the next go around, even before the next go around, how we can ensure that it is not just the teachers pushing for these things, the things that our school district needs. Um, uh, that's certainly what I'm doing right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, principals are very vulnerable, more so than you say teachers got a five-year contract. What's the, the principal contract is three years. Am I correct on that? Well, one, principals do not have a collectively bargained contract. They that's get, correct. Each one gets an individual contract that the district itself writes, mm -hmm. um, and it is four years. And not all principals get one. There's, there are at least 100, I believe, in so-called interim principles. They've been, in some, there's principles who've been interim from, for eight years, Ben. Wow. So that they will not give them a contract. Yeah. Um, wow. And we actually have a bill sitting in front of a, a legislator right now that would extend collective bargaining rights to principals in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And um, we're not looking to push it forward right now uh, until we'll try and push it in a spring session. Um, but it, we believe that it is necessary. I mean, I just got four position files from a principal. And the positions files describe the positions, the annual salary, the weekly salary, and the hourly rate. Now, listen to the hourly rates on these four position files. One of the files is for a principal, one is for an assistant principal, two are for teachers. So here are the hourly rates, $75, and $51. Which of those hourly rates do you think belong to the two teachers and which do you think belong to the principal and the assistant principal? 75, 74, 63, and 51. Well, now when you ask the question, now this is like one of those uh, betting games. I would say the higher one would be the principal and the assistant principal. But I think when you ask that question, that leads me to believe that it's uh, You're right. counter. <laughs> it is counter. Yeah. 75 is the teacher. 74 is the teacher. 63 per hour is the principal and 51 mm -hmm. is the principal because principals work year round. Mm, I see. Right. And so they actually get paid at significantly less than the people they're supposed to be supervising. And part of that is a result of the fact that they don't have collective bargaining power. Mm. And the district just tramples on them and disrespects them left and right. Uh, and they have to organize themselves. And it is my hope that in trying to organize them around that issue, um, that we build the advocacy muscle of principles to, and, and in organizing around that issues, we build the relationships that will enable us to help uh, parents and the teachers organize around other issues that we also care about, like staffing, for example. Well, you're getting into income issues, and uh, the teachers affected their strike. The main uh, sticking points was not uh, the financial end. It was not how much they get paid. The bread and butter issues, it was the, the larger classroom uh, issues of how many uh, employees and workers there are in a school. That's a, that's effectively what the strike was uh, came down to. 
it's a very interesting dynamic when you talk about the amount of money a public educator makes. Right. Because for years, I really can't get my head around this one, Troy. Um, it was this, it was almost viewed as that teachers were violating a sacred mission if they were to publicly demand a greater wage. Everywhere else in this country, your worth as an, a worker, your worth on a marketplace is largely determined by the amount of money you make. Mm-hmm. It's a case of basketball, movies, CEOs, the head, head of Uber. Uh, you know, we, we talked about Uber. He wants to make sure he's getting a lot of money as benefits his position as the head of Uber. But when it comes to public, uh, well, it comes to teachers mm-hmm. or principal, oh, no, no, hey, 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 that's the kids come first. The kids come first. Stop it. Now you're making too much money. What was that language you used? Violating a sacred principle. Principle. Yeah. No pun intended. Um, I think that you are violating a sacred principle as a city or as a school district when you do not offer a salary competitive enough to get the best people in here for the children that you're supposed to be educating. When a principal in Chicago can look around and find 52 school districts that pay a higher rate than the district here within a 15 to 45 minute driving distance, that's a problem. You have violated an obligation to ensure that you can attract good people in to lead the schools that serve your young people. Um, and you have to value the work. Like if you, like how else do you express the value you attribute in the worth of the work than what you pay people to do the work? Um, and, and when you have principles you know, that principal sent me those documents for a reason. He's pissed. He hears all of this conversation about raises for teachers and we value our, and <laughs> value me. <laughs> value, show that you show value me the money. my work. <laughs> yeah. Show that you value yeah. my work. And at the same time, we see, when I, when I got the job at Blaine, what is it, seven years ago now? There were over a hundred people who applied for that job. They had to narrow, I think they told me they narrowed it down to 36. Mm -hmm. And then they started going through and calling people from these 36 and then they narrowed it down to I think eight. And then they narrowed it down to me and one woman. When the Blaine principalship was just opened up, they couldn't get 10 people. They were calling me, asking me if I knew candidates. Right? And so that's what happens when you're in a district where principals feel disrespected, where they're not compensated at a level that's competitive, that's, com- that's competitive with not just with other districts, but with teachers. <laughs> right? That's what happens. You can't get teachers to leave teaching positions to become assistant principals if my pay rate's going to go down to 51 bucks an hour and now it's at 60 or 70. Mm. Like you can't get the talent in for the young people you're supposed to be serving. That's a basic economic principle. And for the CPS or anyone to forget the basic laws of economics when it comes to our young people, you know, it's like those Republicans and their corruption talking point. 
that you believe in that only when you're talking about us. You know, I, I have this thing where I say CPS wants to pay everybody it owes. The banks, Aramark, <laughs> everybody wants to pay everybody it owes except the people who actually earn the money that they're owed. The people who actually worked for what they're owed. Those are the ones they don't want to pay. And what, the heck, what did the bank do for you? What, what, how much work did they do for the hundreds of millions of dollars that you gleefully send them every single year? That you do not protest at all. They don't have to go on strike for them to get what they're, due from, what they're owed from you. There is no acrimony. You pay. But when it comes to the people who actually do the work, that's when we get the acrimony. That's when we get the editorials from the Sun-Times. You know, people don't, like, the, 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 the ruling class of this city don't want to pay the people who work. They want to pay the people who own. We will take a break on that profound point. We come back, we'll sp uh, switch topics to national news, national issues, which I'm sure the themes are very similar to the one that Troy just <laughs> raised on the local level. We'll be right back. The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu slash masters. It's Chicagoland's Adult Entertainment Playground. It's the world-famous Admiral Theater, 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. The Admiral is homegrown from Chicago, and it's the most conveniently located club in all of the city. 15 minutes from the O'Hare Airport in downtown Chicago Loop. Voted Chicago's best strip club, the Admiral has showgirls galore and a variety of adult entertainment shows. The world-famous Admiral Theater, open every day from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m., 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. For events, showtime, and other information, visit AdmiralX.com. Must be 18 years of age or older to enter. Well, we got to get down to business. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Live from the Chicago Sun-Times. We are doing our business. Troy LaRavier is in the studio, uh, president of the Chicago Principals Association. That was a very deep conversation we just emerged from. I, I wrote down his line. Uh, in the city of Chicago, the power elite, they don't want to pay people who work. They want to pay people who own. Uh, That's correct. That is, Robert Mueller agrees with that one. Uh, before we come back to Troy, I'm going to uh, switch gears and to ask some national news. Before we do that, D, you got an update for me? Absolutely. We do have an update here uh, before we roll out of here for the day. Ben, 10 trivia points. Uh-oh. <laughs> Which former Ben Jarofsky show guest, reoccurring show guest, and former Jeopardy contestant just announced that he is running for 9th District County Board? Uh, Neil Muhammad? There's only one. Yes, Neil Muhammad. I, I did not. He's running for office again? Yeah, yeah. That's why it's a breaking update. Wow. Yes, it's Neil Muhammad. He ran for Congress two years ago, the 16th Congressional District, but now he's looking for a seat on the county board. Neil Muhammad, 38 years old, announced Monday that he was running to succeed Paul Stoddard, the Democrat out of DeKalb, and representing the 9th District on the board. Uh, we have a quote from Muhammad here. He says, quote, I'm just hopeful to have the opportunity to take what I've learned in the private sector, particularly regarding rural medical care and public health, and make a positive contribution to our community. So congratulations. Good luck to our good friend, Neil Muhammad. You know, I have mixed feelings about this. 
And uh, Troy, I don't think you ever met Neil Muhammad. Uh, truly, I, and I, he's truly one of the smartest people that's ever walked through that door. Uh, and he's a Jeopardy contestant, uh, which ne- doesn't necessarily mean, you know, he's smart, but he shows he has a lot of stuff upstairs. Did he win? No, he didn't. He won one round and lost the other, and then I nailed him on it. Remember, I asked him a trivia question. He couldn't answer it. I can't remember. Some obscure piece of trivia that's floating. They were making fun of me earlier today because I, like, know I have this incredible ability, Troy, to remember where people went to high school. Um, For instance, Troy LaRavier is a proud uh, graduate of... DeSabo High School, if I'm a correct, or is it Dunbar Vocational? Dunbar. Dunbar I knew it was a D in the D-U, South Side. D-U, you got the D-U. <laughs> well, that would have been embarrassing if you got it wrong. Huh? But come yeah. on, man. You got to give me credit for that. I, yeah, Troy told me that. Good, it's really weird. Uh, but Neil Muhammad, is, uh, I, he would come in and we would speak for an hour on this or that subject. And he was so well-versed. Uh, and, you know, he just like would take these he, he, like on healthcare, the man knows so much about healthcare, and he would talk about the history of healthcare. I'm like, what a great. So now, you know, now that he, but he wants to be a public official. He wants to be an elected official. So I, you know, I got to grant him that. But I'm like, oh no, I want you to be at the beck and call of the Ben Jarofsky show. So I got mixed feeling. Good, God bless you, Neil. Well, maybe Good we can luck get to one you. more interview. Out one of more interview. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, you can download uh, our interviews with Neil uh, Muhammad yeah. if you're unaware of them, chicagosuntimes.com, chicagoreader.com, wherever else you download your favorite podcasts. A very, very smart man. You'll learn something if you listen to No, that. you know, everybody knows I got my favorites. Uh, you know, Troy, obviously, uh, Stacey Davis-Gates, you know, Neil Muhammad, the people that come back recurring because they got something interesting to say. Maya, they're not afraid to say it. You know what I mean? So, uh, Neil, God bless you. Best of luck to you. Neil Muhammad, uh, for, yeah, he's from DeKalb. Schlepp been all the way from DeKalb too so I appreciate that uh, that's no joke all right uh, now I sent you a, a homework assignment which obviously you were too busy to do so I'll help you with the homework assignment I was just utterly obsessed with this story uh, Troy that broke over the weekend and I haven't had an opportunity to talk about it. I'm probably gonna write about it okay uh, I wrote about it briefly but okay follow me on this so Mayor Michael Bloomberg, former Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who for about 12 years was the mayor of New York City, mm-hmm. and as the mayor of New York City, was very proud of a policing strategy uh, that he championed called Stop and Frisk, in which police officers were essentially encouraged to literally do that, stop and frisk. And the idea was that if you on a routine basis just... Uh, Stop and frisk, arrest, what have you, people that you think are up to no good, crime will fall. Uh, That was the attitude prevalent in New York City back in the early part of this century. And uh, he championed it. And he was, uh, there was a counter blast from uh, black activists, black, just ordinary black people in the city of New York. Because guess what? Troy LaRavier, most of the people that were swept up by stop and frisk were black people. And the ACLU, God bless the ACLU, filed some lawsuits and forced the city of New York when uh, Bloomberg left and de Blasio took over to retreat from stop and frisk. Crime was falling already during stop and frisk, Troy. It continued to fall even when they got rid of stop and frisk. So the first 
view is maybe there's not a correlation, a direct correlation between crime and stop and frisk. If crime is continuing to fall, maybe there's other factors at play here. Or maybe if you move away from stop and frisk, that'd be a more effective means of policing against crime. Whatever, that's what's going on. Bloomberg was defiant in his support of stop and frisk in the face of uh, criticism. Up until, I think, a couple months ago, he was still defending it. Then, lo and behold, he decided he wanted to run for president of the United States as a Democrat. Well, if you're going to run for president of the United States as a Democrat, you absolutely positively must, with a capital M underline, must get black votes. So what happened on Sunday? He uh, stopped off at a black church Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn, the the minister, the preacher of the church is friendly with him, has been friendly with him for years, gave him access to the congregation, and he apologized for stop and frisk. He said, I was wrong for stop and frisk. It was like the light went on. Okay, maybe the light was turned on by suddenly looking at polls that show, I don't know. But there's a part of me, you know, Troy, I battle with this that's very skeptical about what people do and wh- mm-hmm. why they do it. I mean, you know, I'm always struggling with this. Profound moment, an apology from one of the most powerful men in America. He's a billionaire, mm-hmm. three-time uh, mayor of New York City, had a huge hand in shaping all kinds of policies. He could continue to do that if he chose. He has apologized for stop and frisk. Your thoughts. So let me as someone who has been um, targeted multiple times in my life by police action. Yeah, it it is some seriously demeaning, dehumanizing shit for that to happen to you. It is you you feel power. It, it, It is. It's just fucking demeaning, right? And imagine an elected official, powerful elected official, deciding that he's going to put hundreds, thousands, or hundreds of thousands of people through that, through that demeaning, disempowering process. Right? I don't care if your apology is sincere or not, right? Because we have to make a decision here, right? And the decision isn't. Is your apology genuine? Is this a a show? The decision is, do you get to be president? Do you get my vote for president? My vote is not going to hinge on whether you're sincere about your apology. My vote is going to hinge on the fact that you were in an office of great power and you abused the hell out of that power by using it to subject thousands of people every single day to that kind of abuse. You don't get to run for president. I'm glad you're sorry, but you don't get to be president after having done that. You need to chalk it up. I screwed up. I had my chance. I screwed it up. You know, should black, no one should vote for this man. If you don't believe that human beings should be subjugated, devalued, and humiliated like that, then you don't vote for this man. You don't give him a chance. Thanks for your apology. Now go home and on, or go out to sail on one of your seven yachts. 
but get the hell away from the presidency of the United States. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. You know, I, I had, did they ever tell you about this one traffic stop I had? Um, I've had plenty, but I had this one that was so telling. I'm an assistant principal at Johnson School of Excellence. And I get off work, I have my suit on, my tie, and I'm driving home. I, Johnson is west side, I lived on the south side. So I'm going fast, admittedly. I may have ran an orange light or two. <laughs> Which road, what road are you traveling on? I'm going down California. Okay, going south on California. I'm going south on California. Mm -hmm. I'm around the teens, 20s, streets. Mm -hmm. And this car, this um, was like a sport utility vehicle, blue, pulls up and goes into the oncoming traffic to pass me up. Um, this is me, this is him. He goes in oncoming traffic to pass me up and then stops his car in front of me to stop me. He gets out of his car. He walks over to my car. He flashes his badge as he's walking toward me. And I roll my window down. This dude reaches into my uh, car to pull out my car keys, snatches them out of the car, snatches my keys out of the car, then does one of these numbers with his coat. He's in civilian clothes, but he's a cop. And he flies, he's got his gun right there. And I look at him, I go, I'll never forget, I'm like, a gun? I say this out loud, a gun? For a traffic stop? A gun? I'm just looking at him, dead like I'm looking at you. A gun? And he kind of catches himself. Then he starts to just snap and berate me in front of, you know, just out in public, just berates me. But just, you know, he's just snapping. And me, you know, California is one lane both ways around there. So there's these cars behind me, and I'm backing up. We're backing up traffic. So I said, excuse me, officer, as politely as I possibly can. Um, is it all right with you if you gave me my keys back so I can pull up and get out of these folks' way so that they can pass us by? I won't go anywhere. I just want to get out of these folks' way. And he stops. Like he's suspended. And he goes, I'm sorry. You're not who I thought you were. I'm sorry. You're not who I thought you were. I see you dressed in a suit. You're very conscientious about the people behind you. You're not who I thought you were. And the question becomes, who did he think I was? Right? He thought I was the person he'd been trained his entire life to believe I am. He thought I was who everyone in America <laughs> is conditioned to believe I am, including us. Right? There is a narrative, a stereotype, imagery, of people who look like me that, you know, we call this, you know, uh, implicit bias, right? The police didn't teach him that. Life in America taught him to expect a certain thing from people who look like me. Now, you multi and the, 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 the thing about it is, I believe this was a good man. He actually believed that I was who he thought I was, <laughs> that I deserved, 
you know, and it wasn't it, it, it wasn't until he was confronted by my extraordinary calm, <laughs> believe it or not, and my dress, and I got an opportunity to display the fact that I gave a damn about like the thing that he thought I was just didn't jibe with the reality of who I was. Now, maybe I maybe not many brothers don't get the many brothers don't get the chance to do that. Sometimes when he, when you reach for that gun, there's an action there based on who they think we are. You know, the stop and frisk happens based on who they think we are. And so, again, for you as an elected official, Mr. Bloomberg or Mr. whoever the hell you are who believes in that kind of policy to subject so many of us Man, I just had to sit there and take that, man. Like, it was one of the most demeaning, dehumanizing things I've ever experienced in my life. How did it culminate? He gave you the keys. He apologized. Went. He gave me my keys, and he let me drive off. That was it. That was it. You know, for me, it ended well. It didn't begin very well. <laughs> but it should have never happened, period. Like. But because of who he thought I was. Yeah. And so many New York City police officers, Chicago police officers, think that people who look like me are a certain way, which is why you see those numbers the way they are in terms of all the black people who they stop and frisk and fucking humiliate mm -hmm. and dehumanize. Like, you, you don't get to be an elected official. Well, it'd be more believable if uh, instead of having this uh, confession on the eve of a presidential election, uh, he had had would said, you know what? I'm going to give X amount of money to the ACLU or something like that, you know, mm -hmm. to as a sign that I realized I went too far in uh, infringing on people's constitutional rights, and I believe in constitutional rights. Uh, you know, uh, Bloomberg was one of the big funders. You probably know this, but I'm just going to say this anyway for our listeners who might not know this. The gun stuff? Uh, well, gun, uh, yes, gun, but also the fight against uh, uh, sugary sugary drinks. That's yeah. one of his obsessions. Mm -hmm. uh, and as such, he you know was a leader of the movement that caused Tony Preckwinkle so many problems when she tried to increase the sh uh, soda pop tax, the sugar tax. We talked about that many times when you were on the old show. And... Uh, you know, so he's not afraid to put his some of his money behind causes that he really believes in. The, mm -hmm. the soda pop thing is one obvious case. Guns is another obvious case. So it'd be, I'd be more impressed if he wasn't running for president and if he said, you know what, I've thought about this and I've come to the conclusion I was wrong. Uh, like that slaver in that song, Amazing Grace, right. you know, and uh, uh, I've now, I'm going to turn my life around on this particular issue and crusade as strongly against it as I do about for getting the people to stop drinking soda pop because it's bad for their health or getting people to having access to guns because it's bad for their health. Yeah, I agree with all, everything you just said was a great way to atone for his mistakes. Uh, I agree with all of them, but you still don't get to run for office and have me support you. All right. Uh, that's fair enough. And uh, so the question I had for you, can you think of any other apologies 
that you would like to hear uh, prominent politicians make for the policies of the 21st century? Um, plenty, but the one I'm thinking about right now is I would like to hear Democrats apologize for the horrible messaging that they that they have around this impeachment. Talk about that. Um, I mean, you look at the, I, one. If I hear the word quid pro quo, <laughs> like nobody get like, <laughs> come on, like, yeah. like come on, yeah. like you're trying to win hearts and minds here. You're trying to get yeah. people to understand just how derelict and corrupt uh, and how treacherous yeah. this act is, and you, you quid pro quo. Come on, man. Second, um, <laughs> in relationship to defining what it is the man did. He didn't want an investigation of Joe Biden. He wanted an announcement of an investigation of Joe. That's what you have to emphasize because in he 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 preconditioned military aid on a public announcement of an investigation. You have to see the difference here because the announcement itself undermines an actual investigation. You, when, since when have you heard the FBI <laughs> announced that it's going to invest? Like once they've announced it, they've, yeah. they've been investigating for a year. They've conducted the raid. Uh, that's when the public finds out the office, when the, when the raid goes down. Valid point. Right. He didn't <laughs> want an investigation. He wanted an announcement of one. Yeah. And in wanting an announcement, one, you doom any real one that you possibly could have wanted. Yeah. But you didn't. Third. <laughs> That's a good point. Third. And, and, and then no one's saying yeah. it. Third. And I think most importantly, yeah. that aid. When we give folks aid, it's typically in our national security interest. It is in our national security interest. Uh, that's the argument, at least. I don't believe it. But since that's the talking point, let's use it. You know, when they're helping out some military group to fight terrorism in whatever the heck country they're in, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, right? that's a, typically the argument is that we don't want those folks to reach our shore, so we're attacking it over there. Right? This is in the security interest of the citizens of the United States of America. And so you're holding out you're not just holding out military aid, you're jeopardizing the security of the American people so that you can get an announcement of an investigation. Right? They have to, Democrats have to learn to frame this so that it will look like what it is. Like the way it's framed now, it's almost academic. And mm -hmm. dude, this dude was a traitor. This dude put you in jeopardy. This dude jeopardized your life and your safety so that he can get an announcement. You know, and I can play with the, we still have to play with the words a little bit, but we could message this so much more effectively so that people can see the level of criminality. And that's another word I haven't used. This man's a criminal. Um, you know, but, you know, all the Democrats can say is investigation and quid pro quo. And like nobody gives a crap about. It. I mean, nobody except people like you and me. Yeah. But we need we need the general public and you don't get the general public with that kind of language. You have to really get in and cut and they're not doing it. And it's it's very disappointing. It's frustrating. Uh, and 
yeah, it's frustrating. And I'll com- it's compounded by the fact that the entire Republican Party is complicit in it. And, you know, it's, it's like I always talk about the different sports and do a sports metaphor. The difference between going into a gym and just shooting baskets by yourself and then playing a game where there's someone covering you. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to do it when you're just shooting by yourself. And another thing when there's a guy pushing you, shoving you, waving his hands. The Democrats are conducting a quote unquote investigation while the other side is playing defense, if you will. They're rubbing, throwing their hands in the air. They're yelling at you when you shoot the free throw. Mm-hmm. They're pushing you, they're following you. And it gets, we're, I guess we're, we're ending where we began, like a, the principle that wrongdoing should be investigated is out the window. And the, the Republicans have very much become Johnny Cochran. They're employing all, they, they should thank Johnny Cochran. They're learning from Johnny Cochran. They're employing all the techniques that Johnny Cochran used to get OJ off, and they're doing it on behalf of Donald Trump. They're vilifying mm-hmm. the enemy. They're trivializing the arguments. They're looking to distract the jury any which way they can. They're doing absolutely everything they can to reposition the focus away from the allegations of the crime. Mm-hmm. And if the, like, that's the flip side of my point. If your message was sharper, you would be able to pivot so much more easily when they come with all of this distracting BS. Pivot towards this criminal. Pivot toward the criminal act. Pivot toward a very precisely and narrowly defined set of actions that you have characterized as best as you possibly can that you just always go back to. All right. Now, before I let you out the door, uh, tomorrow is uh, debate, Democratic National Debate. That's Uh, correct. I think there will be 10 candidates (laughs) uh, on stage uh, good Lord. It's, it's amazing. Uh, Troy, every time you come on the show, I keep thinking there's going to be a reduction in the number of Democrats mm-hmm. running for president, but it kind of staying the same. Is Bloomberg going to be on? No, he will not be on. He's not qualified for this debate. Bloomberg, I don't think is officially a, a presidential. He's allowing his, he, uh, filed to run in Alabama. I want to say like, he's going to get a lot of votes in Alabama. Right. Anyway. Uh, and I guess he's sort of like, seeing how the trial balloon is, you know, what the reaction is, et cetera. So he will not be one of the 10. Uh, So anything in particular you would like to hear Democrats articulate tomorrow to try to win over the populace? I mean, outside of the message that I just mentioned, um, there is a Democrat in the race who pretty much articulates everything I want to see articulated, and that candidate is Bernie Sanders. Um, that we live in a country whose economy is rigged by the wealthiest among us, that these people make more money, have more money than they can spend in their entire lifetime, lifetimes, and are trying to get rig the economy even more so that at the expense of people who don't have enough to last until the end of the month. And then they take that money and corrupt our political system. And I'd like to see a lot more calling out of those who are on that Democratic stage who have been corrupted 
in very specific examples. Bernie kind of alluded to it when he was running against Hillary with the Goldman Sachs, but he didn't want to pull the, you know, he, he, he pulled his punches. You know, I like to see folks who take the money called out mm-hmm. um, because that is the essence of what is so wrong with our political system. And if you can't call out the people from, quote unquote, your party who are engaging in that, What are you up there for? Mm. I mean, there's no, there's nothing. I don't think there's anything more important than that. Mm. Talking about because you can talk about healthcare, but the thing that's going to stop you from implementing is that that mm. corruption. You can talk about the need for um, reduced emissions, but the thing that's going to prevent you from passing actual policy that reduces emissions are members of your own party who are taking money from the polluters. Mm. So the issues are great, but let's start talking about the electoral system. Let's start talking about the people inside of our government who are part of the corruption that we need to get out uh, in order to implement all these wonderful ideas you have about free college tuition. And whether it's him or even Elizabeth Warren, I like Elizabeth. Um, I still like Bernie Moore by a mile. Uh, but whoever is out there saying it, call some folks out. Make it real. All right, very good. By the way, I should say that tomorrow we're going to be talking uh, about the debates. Uh, no, I think Thursday. I'm all uh, I got my days mixed up, but uh, Latisa Wallace and uh, Samina Mustafa will be coming in, so we'll be doing some uh, post debate discussion uh, with people, uh, good Democrats. Latisa, uh, what's she doing these days? Uh, other than being a uh, frequent guest on the Ben Jarofsky show. Yeah. Speaking of some of my favorites, she's got a job, in, but I can't remember the exact title, but I know she's working uh, in her hometown of Rockford and she's uh, a very good friend of the show to drive all the way in. And I appreciate her coming on. She'll be here on Thursday. All right. Cool. Uh, Troy LaRavier, thank you very much. Uh, Maya Dukmasovath, I want to thank her as well. And of course, the man, the myth, the legend behind the boards, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, back home. They call him the doctor. Give yourself a raise. Take it well, out. Well, not white Lightning? Oh, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, they also call him White Lightning. Got to remind you of your bits. Oh yeah, thank you, Gary Owen. I owe it all to you. Uh, give yourself a raise. Take it out of cat petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun Times and Chicago Reader websites, chicago.suntimes.com, chicagoreader.com, and wherever else you download your favorite podcasts. Downloaders, we live stream this program Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time at both Chicago Sun Times and Chicago Reader websites and the Chicago Sun Times YouTube channel. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Benny J Show, B E N N Y, the letter J Show. Give us a like, follow, share, review. Tell us we suck. Whatever you want to do, it doesn't matter. And uh, at Benny J Show.